The views and opinions expressed by tonight's guest and topic of discussion do not necessarily represent the official policy or position of Spaced Out Radio. Spaced Out Weekend, Spaced Out Radio Limited, its hosts, syndicated carriers, or anyone associated with this broadcast. Any rebroadcast, reproduction, or other use of this broadcast or podcast without the express written consent of Spaced Out Radio or Spaced Out Radio Limited is strictly prohibited. Listener discretion is advised. the mountains of British Columbia to you listening around the world. This is Spaced Out Radio with host Dave Scott. They let us play with all our toys. They let us think that we're big boys. They let us make a lot of noise but we're in the world. They let us think we're Superman. You can follow us on our website, spacedoutradio.com on iTunes and tune in. Follow Dave on Twitter at Spaced Out Radio on Facebook at Spaced Out Radio Show, or on our YouTube channel, Spaced Out Radio Show. Are you playing with Bigfoot and aliens again? Uh, Dad, you gotta stop haunting the goat. It's scaring them. All right, seriously, put down the pointy sticks. Okay! Game on! Game on! Game on! Word is. Alright, alright, alright. Buckle up, space travelers. It's time to go for a ride on Space Down Radio. Mr. Bumblefoot, Dave is ready for liftoff. Seriously, Dave? Really? Aren't you a little old for a tinfoil hat? I am. Toby. Bye-bye. 
Good evening and welcome to Space Out Radio tonight as we kick off a brand new week. I am your host, Dave Scott, and it's good to have you along for the ride on this Monday, April 3rd, Tuesday, April 4th, if you're on the East Coast or across the pond. Hope you had a great day and a great night. We are live right here at Uncle Jimbo's Cabin, right here in the Great White North, as we are live seven days a week. We welcome in everyone listening in on WQEE 99 Rock the Key in noon in Georgia at SpacedOutRadio.com. On Spreaker, on the United Public Radio Network, Renegade Talk Radio, the High Plains Talk Radio Network, and on Revolution Radio. Mr. Ron Bumblefoot Thal, formerly of Guns N' Roses, is the man who rocks us in and out of every show. Bumblefoot is the official sound of SOR. Hey, if you're a social media fan like I am, follow me on Twitter, at Spaced Out Radio. Give our Facebook page a like, Spaced Out Radio Show. On Instagram, you can follow me at Dave Scott SOR. Subscribe to our our YouTube channel, Space Out Radio Show. Tune us in on TuneIn. Download our shows from iTunes. We're also on RadioGuide.fm, TalkStream Live, and on Stitcher. And, of course, our website is SpacedOutRadio.com. If you head on over to Patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, we have some really cool offers for you there as well for as low as $1 a month to become a Spaced Out Radio patron. If you want to take part in this show, we do not take phone calls. We're one of the rarities. We take all of our questions from the chat room, so you got to sign in. Either on Revolution Radio, on Spreaker, on the UPRN chat room, on our website, spaceoutradio.com, when you click on Listen Live, or on Facebook if you're a member of the SOR Space Travelers Club. Or if you're on Twitter, like Eric and John right now, you definitely want to use the hashtag SpaceOutRadio. I will get to your questions and comments there as well. Head to our website for just 5 bucks a month. You can become an SOR Space Traveler. we got some great swag to give away each and every month. We also have a brand new news section called The Encounter Online that deals with everything paranormal, courtesy of our editors, Eric Markham and Everett Themer. You can check out my latest blog there as well. We are live on two terrestrial radio stations, WQEE 99 Rock the Key in Noon in Georgia, the home of the Walking Dead, and on the United Public Radio Network on 107.7 FM in New Orleans. And their listeners from over 160 countries around the world, good to have you with us. We're live in Las Vegas as well on Renegade Talk Radio and on Revolution Radio. The Double R Machine is a donation station financed by you, the valued listener. Head on over to freedomslips.com and donate today. Jack the Ripper is one of the greatest mysteries of modern history. And with that, we have to go back to Britain in 1888, and the legend of Jack the Ripper was born. The nickname is best known as the name given to an unidentified serial killer, generally believed to have been active in the largely impoverished areas in and around Whitechapel District of London. The name Jack the Ripper originated in a letter written by someone claiming to be the murderer that was disseminated in the media. The killer was called the Whitechapel Murderer, as well as Leather Apron, within the crime case files, as well as in contemporary journalistic accounts. One of the historians of this case is Simon Entwistle, 
a regular on BBC Radio, talks all things paranormal. His ghost tours, called Top Hat Tours, spend a great deal of time on Britain's most infamous unsolved mystery. So we're going to take a look at this case, Jack the Ripper, from a paranormal point of view, as well as all sorts of ghosts that are covering over the United Kingdom. Simon and Whistle, thank you so much for staying up late. I know it's just after 4 o'clock in the morning where you are. Muchly appreciate you joining us live with our fans here on the mighty SOR. How are you? I'm fine, thanks, Dave. It's great to be with you. It's great to have you here as well because... You know, we're only a pretty young show. We're 28 months old. We do this thing every night. But some of these topics that we deal with on a nightly basis are tougher to find people than expected. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, you and I hooked up on Facebook, and boom, here you are. We're going to be talking Jack the Ripper tonight. Thank you so much for doing that. Well, it's an intriguing story, Dave. It's probably one of the world's most finest whodunits. But as you quite rightly mentioned before, if we turn the clock back to 1888 in this area called Whitechapel, it was really known as Outcast London. Uh, It was densely, densely populated in 1888. And only five years previously, what had happened is a huge influx of Jews came in from Romania, from Russia, and indeed Poland. And uh, these Jewish people, they just wished to uh, escape, shall we say, persecution of their countries. But they uh, did start their own businesses. And uh, you could say they started what's called their local mafia in many ways. Uh, They were disliked intensely by the people of Whitechapel. But you can imagine the conditions there were were pretty grim, really. Uh, Seven people living in a room, um, 90,000 people in an area designed for, shall we say, 13,000. People would be um, fighting for an everyday existence in those days, if you will. And what's so sad is that only a couple of miles away in the centre of London, you've got probably one of the most uh, richest capitals on the planet uh, when it, in terms of financial um, financial uh, gains, etc. But we'll turn the clock back now to the 31st of August, 1888, and a place called Bucks Row in Whitechapel. Uh, a young woman of the name of Polly Ann Nichols, she lives in what's called one of the Doss houses. Now, out of those 9,000 people, 1,800 are literally on the streets. Uh, they can go in the Doss house, but it will cost them uh, two pence to stand up all night. It'll cost them four pence to get a bed and eight pence to get a double bed. Um, in the case of Polly Ann, She's made her way into one of the DOS houses, but she's only got one pence on her. So therefore, she's been thrown out onto the streets. She walks down what's called Buck's Row, and out of the darkness appears a very, very nasty character. He's really quick. He's really silent. He cuts her throat from left to right. And as she falls to the ground, he then places the knife uh, in her groin and literally rips her from the groin right up to the sternum. He then disappears into the night without a single sound uh, being heard. Um, Annie Nichols, God bless her, she had five teeth missing. She had five children. Uh, Her husband, William, had left her after their fifth child. Uh, He actually had an affair with the midwife. Uh, So Pollyanne moved in with her father. Uh, 
but left due to heavy drink problems. She then lived in the workhouse. She was rescued by a uh, by a, um, a Christian family called the Chowdrys, but she left their home due to the fact that she stole off them and found herself in Whitechapel. Now, the quickest way to earn any money, of course, would be prostitution. Uh, she left her DOS house. The last person to see her live that, that night, way back in 1888, was a young girl called Emily Holland. She was also a prostitute. And she said, in her Cockney English accent, she said, Hey, uh, Polly, what are you doing up at this time of night? Well, I've got no money, haven't I? I'm going to try and get some. I'll soon have some money. I've got a lovely bonnet to wear tonight. And that was the last they ever saw of Polly Ann. The first person to come across the body was a gentleman of the name of Charles Cross. He worked at nearby Spittles Market, and he rushed at great speed to find a constable, PC John Neal. PC Neal uh, saw her with her throat cut in a pool of blood uh, against the gas lamps of the early morning uh, lights. Dr. Llewellyn was brought in, and he had the body moved to the local workhouse. And it was only the following day when the body was stripped that they found she had indeed been badly ripped uh, by um, a very, very dangerous and a very, very silent killer. Um, word had got around Bucks Row that a person called Leather Apron, John Pfizer, uh, was indeed the culprit. And the Metropolitan Police and City of London Police and Scotland Yard, three different divisions, all went looking for this person called Pfizer. He was arrested, but he had a, a very, very good alibi. He was nowhere near Bucks Road that evening, and many people could actually vouch for him. A week passed, and on the 7th of September, another woman of the name of Anne Chapman. Uh, Anne had quite a sad life, really. Uh, she um, was born... Uh, way back in the 1851, and she married her husband, John, who was a coachman for Windsor Castle. Her first son was born disabled. Her daughter, Emily, died of meningitis, and she and her husband turned to drink. In 1886, she left her husband and moved into the city of London and lived with a sieve maker. Uh, but he left her due to her allowance disappearing due to the fact that her ex-husband had in fact died. Uh, she made a living making crochet and flowers, but then became heavily involved in prostitution. Uh, it's said that before she lost her life, she actually had a fight in a public house called the Ten Bells with a lady called Elizabeth Tanbury. On the night of the 7th of uh, September, she made her way to a place called 29 Hanbury Street. As she made her way into Hanbury Street, she was seen by a lady called Elizabeth Long talking to a man who was wearing a deer stalker hat and what looked to be a, a cape. Uh, as Elizabeth walked past the couple, she heard the words, Will you? Yes, she said. She thought that he sounded slightly foreign. Well, they made their way into the backyards of Hanbury Street. And at literally half past four in the morning, a gentleman called John Evans opened the door and saw in the yard the body of Anne Chapman. Uh, she had her intestines removed and placed on her right shoulder. And he almost screamed. He ran into the street and Inspector Chandler of H Division 
Metropolitan Police arrived and was horrified to find this woman in such a terrible state. She'd had a throat cut from left to right. She'd had her uh, left uh, kidney removed and also her uterus, uh, but in a very clever way, almost as if the person who removed these organs knew exactly what he was doing. Word got around the whole of uh, Whitechapel that another murder had taken place, and the police got an awful lot of criticism. A gentleman called George Lusk received a letter to the Central News Agency, known simply as the Dear Boss Letter, informing them that the Ripper, a gentleman called Jack the Ripper, was indeed committing these murders, and the police would stand no chance in ever capturing him. Well, another two weeks passed. And on the 3rd of September, a woman of the name of Elizabeth Stride was making her way into what's called Hambury, the, the top end of Hambury Street. Um, she came from Sweden, Elizabeth Stride. She was 44 years old, and she had indeed been a prostitute in Sweden. Uh, she married, she came over to England and married Thomas Stride. He was a ship's carpenter. He was actually some 20 years older than her. The marriage failed and she made her way into the city of London. And there she started her new career in prostitution. On the night of the, uh, on the night of the 3rd September, she made her way into what's called Dutfield's Yard. There she was seen standing by the entrance to the yard by a witness of the name of Israel Schwarzer. And Schwarzer said uh, that they seemed to be arguing, so he walked across the road. At the same time, Louis Dumschultz, he was a, a very wealthy man from that area. He owned a club. And as he made his way into the yard, his horse reared up as if it had seen something. Uh, Dumschultz climbed uh, off his trap and made his way to the corner of the yard and came across the body of Elizabeth Stride. Uh, at first he thought it was his wife and he rushed into the club but was delighted when his wife was alive and uh, the club members came outside and saw Elizabeth lying in a pool of blood. Uh, what made Elizabeth different to Polly Ann Nichols and Anne Chapman is that her throat had been cut but her body hadn't been dismembered. It's believed that Louis Dumschultz had somehow at, uh, come at the wrong time, if you will, before the Ripper could really get into action. We now make our way, uh, literally some 28 minutes later, into Mitre Square in the centre of London. And a young lady of the name of Catherine Eddowes, she is an alcoholic, uh, she's been in the police cells at Bishopsgate Police Station. And of all the bad luck, the police uh, go into the cell and say, right, you're sober now, you can go. And they literally threw her out of the police station at 1.45 a.m. She made her way into this area called Mitre Square. There were three witnesses that night who saw her, Mr. Joseph Lavander, uh, Mr. John Levi, and William Harris, and they saw her talking to a man, again wearing a deer stalker hat, a cape, and giving the appearance of being slightly foreign. They then left the square. Now, the square was in fact patrolled by a police constable called P.C. 
Watkins. He would walk around this mitre square, which is quite a large square, if you will. It took him seven minutes to actually walk around the entire square. In that period of time, Jack the Ripper came out of the shadows. He rushed up to, to Catherine. He cut her throat from left to right. And all this in the centre of the square, he must have seen P.C. Watkins walking with his back to him whilst he's committing this terrible atrocity. He expertly removes her kidney. He cuts her nose off. He makes three incisions on her face. He opens her um, bowels and throws her intestines over her right shoulder. He then disappears into the shadows. Watkins, who's now making the return journey into Mitre Square, comes across the body and realises that uh, Jack the Ripper has committed this murder right in front of him within seven minutes. Now, because this murder took place in the city of London, which is just outside the, the Whitechapel area, the city of London police were brought in and their chief inspector was Chief Inspector Henry Smith and he arrived with uh, his officers and they came across some graffiti on an area called Goldstone Street, just leaving Mitre Square. And the words were, the Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing. Beneath those words, they came across a blood-stained apron that had been ripped off the body of uh, Catherine Eddowes to wipe the knife clean. Well, you can imagine... Uh, when the Metropolitan Police arrived, they had no jurisdiction within the city, but the actual graffiti was just outside uh, the City of London Police jurisdiction. And uh, Sir Charles Warren, who was in charge of the Metropolitan Police, said, look, get rid of that immediately. Uh, if people see that, we'll have riots on our hands. Uh, but not before a PSPC Kenyan of the uh, City of London Police wrote down this. He wrote the words down so we have a record of what it said. But many people believe it should have been photographed and should have been kept for evidence later on. Sir Charles Warren received a huge amount of criticism from uh, the whole of Great Britain. He was ridiculed, his officers were ridiculed because this was the fourth murder and they were no nearer to catching this man called Jack the Ripper. So therefore, Sir Charles Warren actually resigned his position. Well, quite a few weeks now pass, and it looks like Jack the Ripper has disappeared. But on the 9th of November, 1888, he was going to commit another terrible, terrible atrocity. His fifth victim was called Mary Kelly. She came from uh, Ireland, Republic of Ireland, she was 25 years old, and by all accounts, she was a very, very attractive young lady. She lived at a place called Miller's Court. By all accounts, she was a very pleasant young woman. Uh, she had lived in Wales for a while, and she had lost her husband in a mining explosion and then made her way to the city of London. She turned to drink. Now, she was the only one of the victims to actually have, uh, you could say, a flat, if you will, which is called Miller's Court. When I say a flat, it was just basically one room with a wash basin, a fireplace, a bed, and probably a very, very meagre kitchen, if you will. She was seen 
walking down Dorset Street towards Miller's Court by a gentleman of the name of George Hutchinson. Hutchinson did know her very well and wanted to utilise her services, but he had no money. But he saw Mary with a gentleman wearing a top hat, a cape, and looking very, very dapper. Uh, Hutchinson knelt down to try and get a look at his face and uh, tied his shoelace as he looked up he saw quite a youngish man with a pencil-thin moustache with curled ends to the moustache. He then waited outside Mary's um, flat in the hope that he could uh, utilise her services after this man left, but he gave up, which is a terrible shame because he could have actually perhaps stopped the terrible crime that was going to take place. At exactly half past four in the morning, uh, neighbours heard the words a weak cry of murder but of course neighbours were used to these words the following morning uh, John McCarthy who actually owned Miller's Court went to get the rent off Mary Kelly as he made his way to Miller's Court he saw a broken window he looked through the window and was horrified to find Mary lying on the bed but she'd had the skin removed from her face. She'd had the skin removed from her arms and legs. And it looked almost like a butcher had, had literally dismembered her body. He was violently sick. Inspector Abilene of the Metropolitan Police arrived with Sergeant Teague. And both men were absolutely horrified at what they saw. Now, this is the end of the actual murders but many, many suspects came into the equation. Many, many suspects. One of them being, would you believe, Queen Victoria's grandson, King Leopold Victor. Uh, he's the least of the suspects, but uh, many years later, uh, it was believed that all five prostitutes knew each other very, very well. And it's believed that Prince Leopold Victor, uh, Queen Victoria's grandson, may have had an illegitimate child by one of these prostitutes and the five of them knew all about it and it has been said that on the orders of the royal family all five women had to be murdered so that they could be silenced forever this is one of the weakest of all the uh, the evidence one man however was top of the list he was called john druitt now john druitt was indeed a doctor's son um, he was a failed doctor himself. Um, he had been suffering terribly from depression. He had a hatred for women. And certainly he had access to his father's medical instruments. He also knew Whitechapel very well and seemed to fit the description that Hutchinson said he'd seen with Margaret Kelly that night. What makes him such a chief suspect is... Some four weeks later, his body was found in the River Thames, and he'd obviously taken his life, probably just after the Mary Kelly murder. But we'll never, ever know. Another suspect was an American gentleman called Dr. Tumblety. He was 55 years old, and he was in London at the time of all the murders. He was a qualified doctor. He had a bit of a hatred for women, and he also had this 
rather bizarre habit when he invited people for dinner parties of having exhibits of female um, body parts, if you will, in um, medical jars, quite a few of them being uteruses. And we do know that in the case of Anne Chapman, her uterus was removed with precision by someone who knew exactly where to remove it. Um, He was on Scotland Yard's hit list, and he was actually bailed by Scotland Yard to go to court in two weeks' time, but he made his way straight to Paris, and then from Paris, he got the next vessel back to New York. Scotland Yard tried extradition from New York, but Tumblety just literally disappeared off the radar. Another character would be uh, Dr. Donson. Now, Donson uh, lived in the city of London. He practiced black magic, and he also uh, did use um, human flesh for some of his black magic. Um, Although it was never proved, it is said that he may or may not have been Jack the Ripper. One of the most popular suspects, remember, uh, a lot of the, the, um, shall we say, uh, witnesses mentioned a foreigner. Well, of course, in London that period of time, you had lots of Polish, Russian, and Romanian people. And one of the suspects was a man called Aaron Kosminski. Kosminski, after the Margaret Kelly murder, was seen to be acting very, very strange in Whitechapel, eating out of bins. And he was immediately not, a, not exactly arrested, but sectioned for being mentally ill. His house was searched. Uh, They didn't find uh, any weapons, etc. But uh, certainly he had a hatred for women and was a very, very violent character. Another suspect was a German gentleman. Uh, They've never found out this man's name. But every time the murder took place, a German vessel in the city of London was called a Seraph. And uh, because of World War II, all the records were lost of the ship's company. But um, every time the Seraph was actually in London, a murder took place. And the Seraph uh, would make its way across the Atlantic Ocean down to South America. And in Nicaragua, there were two very, very similar uh, mutilations which matched the ones in London. But sadly, the ship's crew's names were never, ever found. Uh, Another suspect was indeed the first man to actually find Pollyann Nichols, Charles Cross. What was he doing up at that time of night? Why was he there? Uh, We do know that he lived in Whitechapel. We do know he knew the area. But um, again, he was, um, in those days, you had to have an eyewitness account to actually forcibly identify uh, someone. We do know that uh, Kosminski, uh, was sent down to Brighton in the south of England to what's called the uh, the safe house. And there he was uh, interviewed by uh, Charles McNaughton. And they brought in John Lavander, who was a witness. They brought in Elizabeth Long and they brought in uh, Hutchinson. And uh, none of them could actually identify uh, Aaron Kosminski as being Jack the Ripper. Uh, we will never, ever know, Dave. But what I do know is this person, 
commit these murders right under the very eyes of the police, right in one of the most densely populated parts of the world, and was so quick and so fast, he must have been highly professional, but also very, very, very dangerous. My friend, I got so many questions for you right off the bat, but I have to say this, that only once before have I ever seen everybody in my chat rooms go absolutely silent. And that was last week when we had a fellow UK resident, Gary Heseltine, talk police stories with UFOs. And it went absolutely silent there. You have absolutely got my audience in awe right now. If they're if Fantastic. they're if they are commenting, they're like, "I love this voice. This is a storyteller's voice." So, thank you so much for doing that. I'm, I'm just the pleasure is all mine, though, Dave. I am absolutely amazed. I'm not going to lie. I'm absolutely amazed. Let's get to a couple of questions here, if you don't mind, right off the bat, Simon. Sure. The cuts that he was making, and I don't want this to go very grotesque. But you had to have a pretty sharp knife, like almost a laser-type sharp knife, to make such clean cuts. Were the wounds that clean? Was this man just that talented in his cutting abilities, or was it quite a messy sight? Well, Scotland Yard believed the knife was very long. They believed it was actually a mortuary knife, a knife specifically used to actually cut into human flesh. Um, In the case of Anne Chapman, her kidney was removed expertly. The person knew exactly where the kidney was. Uh, In the case of um, Anne Chapman, again, her uterus was removed very, very quickly. And indeed, so was Catherine Eddowes. Uh, Her um, kidney was taken out perfectly by someone that knew exactly what they were doing um scotland yard they did believe that the knife used was indeed a mortuary knife and this is why john Druitt seemed to be one of the main suspects because he would have had he would have had access to his father's medical equipment uh messy yes it was messy but you imagine uh catherine edwards walking around mitre square she was attacked uh so quickly that she couldn't even cry out. PC Watkins would have only been probably 200 yards away with his back to her. Uh, so this person must have uh, been incredibly fast, must have been watching Watkins whilst he actually committed the murder. And then he got to work, uh, not only uh, removing her kidney, but opening her up perfectly, removing her intestines and throwing them with the left shoulder, and then removing the organ, taking the tip of her nose off, and leaving these cuts in her cheek as well. Uh, a very, very dangerous, but very, very fast and efficient killer. I mean, the sound of it, by what you were saying, this person had to know the human body. Oh, without a doubt. And and so, naturally you think doctor, mortician, surgeon, something along those lines. But could it have been maybe a farmer that was used to gutting pigs or gutting cattle? Or sheep That's at that a time. very, very good question. Very, very good question. Certainly Aaron Kuzminski, the Romanian Jew, uh, he had worked at Spitalfields Market. And yes, you're quite right, Dave. He would have actually uh, worked um, as a butcher, perhaps. Uh, but um, there again, I mean, to, to actually find the human kidney, to find the human uterus, you'd have to 
have a bit of knowledge of the medical background. You'd have to know exactly where to look for these organs. And uh, Kosminski wouldn't have been a very intelligent chap, really. He'd have been, uh, well, just probably a, a, an immigrant. He may have worked at the market in Spitalfields, but um, um, I suppose cows and pigs and uh, sheep would have had a different anatomy to a human being. Well, Eric has a question, hashtag Space Out Radio. What do you think the chances of him being a doctor were? Um, well, Dr. Tumblety, he was deranged. He was from America. Uh, Druitt, he was a doctor's son. He was a failed doctor. He had failed all his medical exams. But he would have had an idea of anatomy. Um, certainly, um, there's a good chance it could have been Tumblety or Druitt. But again, both men just literally couldn't be uh, couldn't be interviewed. They just disappeared. But they'd have had a good idea of medical knowledge. Let's get to a couple questions from our audience because uh, Simon, we always like to get our audience involved. This one comes from of Facebook course. at the SOR Space Travelers Club. Gail is asking. Mary Kelly's skin being removed is a bit different from the others. Are there any theories about the reasoning behind that? Yes. Uh, the, mar- the, 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 uh, the Kelly murder took place indoors. So for the very, very first time, Jack the Ripper would have had time to actually work in the body. Remember, he was under a lot of... Uh, he'd have to work very, very fast with the four other victims, really fast. They were outside. But uh, the Kelly murder was done inside. It's said that he got, um, he got the fire going inside the flat so that the flames would actually illuminate the room. And he had lots, lots of time. Uh, he must have been terribly deranged. Uh, Scotland Yard did in fact put all the photographs of the victims on the internet. And you can look at this um, terrible 1888 black and white picture. But even now it looks horrific. The poor girl uh, would have been terribly, terribly mutilated. And uh, when you look at her last uh, second of life, she must have been horrified to see this knife being produced. Um, It is said she shouted the words, murder. But, of course, people living uh, around would have heard that all the time. They'd have been used to, shall I say, people walking the streets and prostitutes um, going around servicing their customers. So, therefore, um, it's, uh, he would have had a lot of time. He, he threw clothing on the fire to keep the fire going so it would illuminate the room. He had more time, Dave. That's why he had time to completely skin the body. I mean, to skin an absolutely full human body, you have to be sick. You have to be be deranged in somehow. You've got to be deranged. I mean, this man was very, very, very dangerous. A very evil character. Uh, A a very, very menacing character. The only good thing to come at these terrible murders, Dave, was the fact the whole world was alerted to Whitechapel. And for the very, very first time, the government realised that there were people really suffering in this part of London. And therefore, sewers were installed, uh, redevelopment took place. And Jack the Ripper, what he actually did was highlight the terrible living conditions these people were living in. That was the only good thing to come out of this whole story. Uh, What is so fascinating about the Jack the Ripper case is that um, with the uh, discovery of DNA, you mentioned at the start of the interview, Dave, that uh, there was a letter sent to the central news agency called the Dear Boss Letter. And uh, this came from the 
supposedly Jack the Ripper. It was written in red ink. Uh, but someone thought, wow, we've now got DNA. Let's look at the letter. And they took the back of the stamp off. And yes, they found 1888 DNA on the back of the stamp. But the DNA was indeed female. And someone realized, oh, it's the postmistress. The postmistress would have licked the stamp when the letter was left at the, uh, oh, at the post. But she would have seen uh, probably the hoax. And many people believe that that letter was indeed a hoax. Uh, but um, there, was, there was the saucy Jack letter, which went to the Central News Agency. And indeed, a kidney was sent to George Lusk. And George Lusk, he formed what's called the um, the Whitechapel Vigilante Committee. He hated the police. He was sick and tired of the police. He felt that they weren't doing enough for the Whitechapel residents. And these murders, remember, the police never got a single suspect. And uh, Lusk looked on the Metropolitan Police and City of London Police as being totally, totally incompetent. At the time when these murderers were going on, did the police at that time take any professional advice about psychological profiles, or had that not existed at that point? It didn't really exist. What they did do is they stepped up the patrols, and it's said that some officers even wore female clothing to try and draw the ripper out. But on the night of the 30th, the double murder, what we call what we call the double murder, the murder of Lizzie Stride and Catherine Eddowes, he committed the two murders within... Um, within um, 800 yards of each other. And when Lizzie's body was found, the place was absolutely full of police. And the Ripper then made his way into, into the Mitre Square, murdered Catherine Edwards, then got back into Whitechapel. To get back into Whitechapel, he'd have to go through hordes of police to get back home again. And this is what no one can understand. He was almost like a silent killer, almost like an invisible killer. Uh, but... Uh, the Metropolitan Police, they just could not get a sighting. They talked to all those five people like Israel Schwartz, uh, Emily Holland, Elizabeth Long, George Hutchinson, John Levander, Harris and Levi. But they didn't really, it was only Hutchinson that got a look at the face, but his description was different to Elizabeth Long's and uh, certainly different to Israel Schwartz's. I love this question from Bob in the SOR Space Travelers Club. He is asking, Simon, are there any elements of the paranormal to these murders? It seems that the murderer was almost like superhuman or had superhuman abilities in speed and ability. Well, the, the, he was, I mean, the, the, there's no choice about it, David. He was a, an absolute maniac, a very evil piece of piece of work, if you will. But in some ways, you have to admire his cunning and his skill because all the murders were done in densely populated areas. And yet no one heard any of, the, any of these poor women scream. Uh, it was all done in 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 many, 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 many ways, professionally. What did happen to me, actually, uh, it's quite bizarre. In fact, I will send you the photograph, uh, Dave. Uh, I was in Mitre Square quite recently with my wife, and uh, uh, my wife took a photograph uh, of me standing in Mitre Square, and just behind my head, in one of the windows, was a female face, and I really couldn't get my head around this. Uh, my wife was quite shocked. She said when she took the photograph, there was no one there at all. 
But I will send you the photograph, Dave, and uh, and I'm sure that uh, you'll find that quite fascinating. That, to me, was slightly paranormal because I couldn't give an explanation. I really, really couldn't. But, you know, modern digital cameras, they do pick up things which the old films don't really. Uh, that did concern me greatly, really, yes. There has to be a reason why whoever Jack the Ripper was stopped at eight murders. Do you think that maybe he was killed or maybe he went back to America or wherever he came from? What is your theory on that, Sire? Well, um, the most common theory would be uh, Druitt, Kosminski, and Tumblety. All three... Uh, well, in the case of Druid, because he committed suicide, he jumped in the River Thames. His body was found four weeks later. Tumulty got back to America, and, and the extradition laws, of course, went to New York, and they just couldn't trace him. They couldn't trace him at all. Um, many people believe that Kosminski may have been the murderer. He was certified as being mentally ill and spent the rest of his life actually in a mental home. The great thing about the story, really, Dave, is that no one knows and no one ever will know. I would absolutely love to get a time machine and to go back to that, that day, the 31st of uh, August, 1888, and actually wait in Bucks Row and actually watch this person make his way to the area. It would be absolutely fascinating. Clues. Let's go back to the crime scenes here. Were there not any clues? Like, was he that tied up or bundled up with gloves and and maybe has his pants tucked into his socks or something or, or some sort of soft soles? Because any type of hard sole or a leather sole would have made noise as he's running down the cobblestone back then. Very much so. Very much so, Dave. Yeah. Uh, there was, uh, at that period of time, of course, rubber soles were just coming out. And um, certainly, um, um, some people could actually afford to buy these new rubber-type shoes. Uh, but they would have been quite expensive. But uh, many people have mentioned that, actually, that um, because he was so quick, so silent, he wouldn't have been wearing what we call a hobnailed shoe, a brogue or a hobnailed boot, but something very, very, very quiet. Uh, and it's believed that he may have been wearing those. But what is absolutely amazing is that... Uh, to have committed these terrible atrocities, he must have been covered in blood. We do know on the uh, My Square murder, left beneath the graffiti, was part of Catherine Eddowes' apron, and that had been wiped with the knife. And uh, the, uh, that was actually used. Scotland Yard looked at the apron, and they did, in fact, look, notice that the, that the length of the knife was actually still exposed in blood on the uh, apron. And that was a very, very long knife. Again, they believe a mortuary knife. I'm going to continue on with our questions from our audience here because I want to get them in, and they like it when we do. Heather is asking, do you think this terrible person was a movie actor, maybe some sort of cannibal? Um, I, many people have mentioned this. Um, I think we're looking at uh, someone who's mentally ill. But uh, when you look at mentally ill people, they don't act normally. This man was on a mission, and that mission was to murder prostitutes. And I think he must have got a kick out of getting away with it. But doing it under the very, very noses. Uh, in the case of the Anne Chatham murder, she was murdered in a backyard. Uh, just 
a, a few feet away was a chap called John Kadesh. He was uh, urinating at that period of time, and he heard a thump, just a slight thump against the against the fencing. Uh, and the Ripper must have known he was there. Um, also, in, in 29 Hamburg Street, were 30 people living within just yards away. Uh, his cunning was just absolutely outstanding. His nerve was outstanding. He must have somehow just concentrated on the actual murders rather than the fear of being caught. But um, I believe that the, the combination of committing the murder and the fact he's doing it under the very nose of the people must have given him a bit of well, a bit of pride or, or some form of self-satisfaction, Dave, really. It would almost seem that, considering he was focused strictly on prostitutes, that he had some sort of beef with it. I, that's the obvious. Were there any rumors as to the fact maybe his mother was a prostitute, or maybe he had been or had his heart broken by a prostitute. What are the theories behind why the hatred for Girls of the Night? There's certainly talk of this person having a hatred for women, a real hatred for women. Uh, I suppose really prostitutes would be easy targets because they would they would act alone. They'd use the ginnels and alleyways of Whitechapel. Um there were very, very brave women in all fairness because they never knew who they were going to come against. Uh, come up against. It could be uh, a young man. It could be an elderly man. It could be a man full of fleas and full of lice and uh, not a very, very savoury character. Those, these women were very, very brave, but so uh, easy targets to act alone in the dead of night, uh, to act alone. So therefore, he must have literally been on the prowl looking for targets. And uh, sadly, um, not just targets, but he would also mutilate and remove organs as well. Uh, definitely a deranged person, someone who wasn't very happy with himself, but I believe someone who must have been mentally ill, Dave. There's no way you could commit these murders without having some form of mental problem. I want to get to Eric's question at hashtag Spaced Out Radio on Twitter. Thanks for asking it, Eric. He says, could Jack have been a British MP or policeman that was trusted and not suspected? Very, very good question. I don't think a member of parliament, I, I find that hard to take in. Um, also a police officer, I don't think so, because to commit these murders, you'd have to be, um, well, you'd have to want to commit the murders. And uh, I don't think the police, a police officer would could actually commit those terrible murders and still be a police officer. So therefore, no, I wouldn't say that. No, I really wouldn't. And we'll get to one more question here. This one comes from Eric, and Eric is asking, what do you think the chances are, Simon, that Jack the Ripper was one of the noble elite similar to the Bilderbergs or Le Circle during that time? Good question. Um, very, very fast. Very, very quick. Highly professional. That's that's what I find Hard to take in, Dave, because if you're mentally ill, you're bound to make some blunders. But he didn't. Every murder was done to precision and coolly and very, very calmly. Um, but again, uh, as we said before, Dave, to do these murders, it's not a game. It's actually an act of evil. Uh, uh, and the manner of the murders wasn't just a quick murder. 
it was this mutilation that went with it as well, which uh, really does bring out probably a last question. Someone that hated women and someone that uh, wanted to get revenge on women. Uh, why the organs are removed, we don't know. There must be a reason for that as well. What would have been the chances of maybe multiple killers? Well, this has been mentioned. We mentioned the, uh, the fact that the five prostitutes would have known each other. They certainly worked in the same area, and they'd also uh, used the same public houses. Uh, the, only, uh, the only relief from all that grief, frustration, and horror would be a glass of gin. Now, a glass of gin in a public house at that period of time would cost you three pennies, and it'd be a large tumbler, a large tumbler of gin. And for those, you'd be inebriated all day. It would take you to a different world. Uh, so, uh, uh, you know, it's the, these poor people every day would have been a, a fight for existence, and alcohol would certainly take away a lot of the fear and a lot of the worries. We only have about three and a half minutes here before we're going to go to break. In Whitechapel at that time, obviously the residents are starting to get a little bit nervous that their own are being mutilated, if that's what we can call it. Was there any sort of vigilantism starting to take place in the town because this would have everybody at a high secure level? Very, very much so. I mentioned uh, George Lusk. George Lusk. He formed what's called the Whitechapel Vigilante Committee. He felt the police weren't doing enough. But the police hated Whitechapel. Uh, in some cases, um, they patrol it with not one officer, but four officers at, at a time. Uh, they hated going to Whitechapel uh, because of the, of the conditions there, and there's lots of alcohol abuse, lots of fighting, etc. It was a very, very rough, horrible place to visit, really. Uh, but Lusk, he was very, very annoyed at the police because he felt they weren't working hard enough. But the Rippers not only got to compete with more police officers being sent to the area, patrols were set up, but he's also got to compete with the Vigilante Committee, and they're patrolling the streets at night as well. So the whole area is swarming with the police, but also swarming with the Vigilante Committee. And they still couldn't capture Jack the Ripper. Do you think that maybe he was a master locksmith, that he could get into someone's house and just disappear that way until the scene was kind of cleared up? Well, Dave, this has been mentioned, actually. Uh, the night of the double murder, he's committed the murder of Catherine Eros in Mitre Square. He's got to get back into Whitechapel. Whitechapel is full of police, uh, searching every single alleyway, every ginnel, uh, after the uh, murder of Lizzie Stride. So somehow he's got to get back into Whitechapel. He'd have to know the area really, really well. And perhaps he did, in fact, gain access by going to someone's house and tiptoeing down the back stairs and out into another ginnel into the centre of Whitechapel. But uh, the night of the double murder is the one that really surprised everyone because... You've got the vigilante squads on the street, you've got the extra police in the street, and they still could not find him. Was it a man that they were looking for? Well, yeah, I think it was a man, definitely, because the strength to cut the throat so quickly from left to right, right back to the uh, the spinal cord, would have taken a lot of strength. And uh, all these women lost their lives so quickly. 
that it must have been someone quite strong. He'd have put the hand across the mouth and tilted the head back and then cut the throat from left to right very, very deeply. Uh, so blood loss would have been almost instantaneous. As the bodies fell to the floor, he would then commit the, the actual mutilations. But they were, they were probably dead before they even reached the floor. Simon, I'm going to get you to hold on. We're going to step out for a break here momentarily. Before we do, we want to give a shout-out to Diamond's Pub in Diamond, Illinois, for all of you tuning us in. Hey, if I could get there for last call, save me a beer if you don't mind. You're listening to Space Out Radio. I am your host, Dave Scott. We'll be back with hour number two and more of Jack the Ripper right after this. From coast to coast to coast, Blacklight Uncharted is taking on the paranormal across Canada. From ghostly hauntings to the UFOs flying above in conjunction with MUFON Canada, they're closely investigating what's going on in the northern skies and checking out the apparitions that walk among us. Check out our videos right here at spacedoutradio.com. We want to know your thoughts, we want to hear your experiences, and we want you to share your stories. The answers are out there, and we intend to find them. Would you like to become one of our space travelers? All you have to do is click on the space travelers icon at spacedoutradio.com. For only $5 a month, you can get access to some great prizes, as well as private monthly shows, newsletters, and a members-only section on our website. Become a space traveler today. The third Monday of every month, Spaced Out Radio is going to bring you a different look at everything paranormal. Welcome to the reporters. Jim Mallard, Vanessa Hogel, Denise Garcia, and Christina George join me, Dave Scott, for a look at the weird and strange from the other side of the microphone. We'll break down ghosts, UFOs, cryptids, and the people investigating them. The paranormal media has never been heard like this. Come listen to the reporters. It's paranormal news at its finest. Welcome to The Encounter. At spaceoutradio.com, The Encounter Online is SOR's trusted news source for everything weird and strange going on around the world. This is news editor Eric Markham. Our team of journalists are scouring the planet for those strange stories that rarely make the mainstream. No fear-mongering or fake news here. Head over to spaceoutradio.com and encounter The Encounter. Hey, this is Canadian Paranormal Investigator Mike Moore. The third Wednesday of every month, I'll be teaming up with Dave Scott to bring you Ghosts of the Great White North. Each month, we will bring on guests from across Canada to discuss their ghostly encounters. Canada is a paranormal hotbed with stories you've never heard, so we're going to bring them to you. So get comfy in your Chesterfield, grab a donut, and join us, eh? Have you had an experience you can't explain? Had a run-in with ghosts, maybe Bigfoot, or seen lights in the sky? Hi, I'm Mike Schmidt from the SOR Sightlines. I'm here to investigate your sighting. Head to spacedoutradio.com and fill out a report on the sightlines. All your information is 100% confidential, and I will help you figure out what you've been seeing. File your report, and let's find out the answers together. Visit purpleplates.com today. For over 40 years, the Purple Energy Plates have been delivering amazing results for their many customers. Inspired by the great genius Nikola Tesla, the harmony, healing, and energetic effects of the plates have proven over and over to be beneficial and often miraculous to thousands of customers. With their money-back guarantee and the many benefits, how can you afford not to get one? 
Check their site for daily specials and choose from their many energy products. You won't be sorry. Visit them today at purpleplates.com for mind, body, and spirit and expect a miracle. Are you interested in advertising on Spaced Out Radio? Head to our website at spacedoutradio.com and click on our advertising tab. There, you will find an assortment of ways you can get your product out there with us, from radio commercials to banners and social media. Have a product you like our hosts to endorse? We can do that too. Visit spacedoutradio.com for more details. Have you got your Cosmic Passport? If you need one, tune in to Cosmic Passport on Spaced Out Weekend. This is Elizabeth Anglin, ET experiencer, spirit medium, and host of Cosmic Passports. Each weekend, I'll be bringing you interviews and support from other paranormal experiencers and the best in intuitive spiritual guidance from across the globe. It's all happening starting at 9 p.m. Pacific Time, midnight Eastern, on spacedoutradio.com. From British Columbia to Northern California, Pacific North Weird has Cascadia covered. Check out our feature videos at spacedoutradio.com, where I... Vincent Zunza and my super sleuth partner Alexandra Sullivan track down the weird and strange stories from around the Pacific Northwest, from Bigfoot to Mel's Hole and everything in between. This is what makes life exciting. So why report the normal when we can report the Pacific North Weird? Right here at spacedoutradio.com. Oh, there's only one way to rock loud and proud. In high definition, Radio 702 Rocks, Las Vegas. Every Saturday and Sunday night, as Dave Scott wanders aimlessly in the wilderness, you can come hang out with me, James Tyson, and Spaced Out Weekend. Starting at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern, I'll take you along as we talk with some of the best experts in their fields. SpacedOutRadio.com is the place to find us. So sit down, relax, put your feet up, enjoy the topics like the paranormal, supernatural, intuitiveness, and so much more. Hope to see you there. Don't have time to listen to Spaced Out Radio Live? Wherever you are, the car, the office, the shower, or even if you're traveling, we're right here for you. Each Spaced Out Radio show can be found on iTunes, TuneIn, and on our YouTube channel, Spaced Out Radio Show. It's the perfect way for you to catch up on our shows. For more information, just head over to our website, spacedoutradio.com, and tune in to us today. The views and opinions expressed by tonight's guest and topic of discussion do not necessarily represent the official policy or position of Spaced Out Radio. Spaced Out Weekend, Spaced Out Radio Limited, its hosts, syndicated carriers, or anyone associated with this broadcast. Would you like to connect with us? Head to spacedoutradio.com for all your latest show info. And hit us up on Twitter using the hashtag SpacedOutRadio. Now, back to Dave Scott and SOR. Welcome back to Space Out Radio tonight. I am your host, Dave Scott. Good to have you with us. Tomorrow night on the program, we will have Ian Holt back. Yes, I know you all love Ian Holt. He will be back talking everything paranormal to horror to death metal to his latest movie starring Mickey Rourke called Unhinged. 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern time at spacedoutradio.com. We want to welcome in everyone 
listening in, thanks to Everett Themer, out at Diamond's Pub in Diamond, Illinois. Good to have you all with us, enjoying the night as you've got the sound down on the music at Spaced Out Radio cranked up. Make sure you have a drink for us there, and maybe a loud cheer so I can hear you way over here on the west coast of Canada. We're also live on our terrestrial stations, WQEE 99 Rock the Key down in noon in Georgia and in New Orleans on 107.7 FM, the United Public Radio Network and their crowd from over 160 countries around the world. Good to have you with us. We're live in Las Vegas on Renegade Talk Radio. And if you're listening in on Revolution Radio, remember the Double R Machine is a donation station financed by you, the valued listener. Head on over to freedomslips.com and donate today. Bill Cardwell has set the password for tonight in the SOR Space Travelers Club, Tephrochronology. Tephrochronology is your password. Make sure you use it wisely, space travelers, as Bill sets a password each and every night right here on the mighty SOR. If you want to follow us on social media, you can do so on Twitter, at Spaced Out Radio. Also use the hashtag Spaced Out Radio to get to your questions and comments to me directly. Yes, Super Muser, including you, our new listener. We're trying to transform you from the other show. So hopefully you're giving us a shot, a good, valued shot. Also, you could give our Facebook page a like, Spaced Out Radio Show. You could tune us in on TuneIn, download this show and others on iTunes. We're also on RadioGuide.fm, TalkStream Live, and on Stitcher. Our website is SpacedOutRadio.com, where we have a plethora of features for you, including joining the SOR Space Travelers Club for 5 bucks a month. You can read up on the Encounter Online, our brand new news section. And if you head over to Patreon.com, That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, Patreon.com. You can also, while you're there, become a Spaced Out Radio patron for as low as $1 a month. Simon Entwistle is our guest tonight. We're talking Paranormal of the UK, mainly Jack the Ripper in the first hour, and we're going to continue with that. Simon's website is tophattours.co.uk, which is a ghost hunting tour. Simon do you have your top hat on right now as you're doing this interview? Uh, not right now, Dave. Not right now. Oh. It's just getting light. Just getting light here in England. Um, I've got birds sung outside. I've got a nice cup of tea. And it's great nice. to be with you tonight, Dave. Very nice. It is very good uh, that you woke up early to share your stories and your history that you have learned with our listeners around the world here in Canada and in the United States on Spaced Out Radio, so we really do appreciate that. Now, in the first hour, we were talking a lot about Jack the Ripper, and I want to get into a couple more questions from our audience, because we always love to continue to work with them, as they are a huge part of this show. Eric is asking, he says, Simon, I know you were already asked about the paranormal-related version of what could have been, but could this person have been non-human, or maybe some sort of traveler that could slip through other dimensions to get away? That's a very, very, very good question, actually, an extremely good question. Um, Certainly, he was quick, he was fast, uh, and almost uh, like a ghost, if you will. Uh, But in all fairness, no, I think he really existed. I think he lived in Whitechapel. But he was a very, very clever, cunning character. Was there a tunnel system at all that he could have possibly used? 
Well, they say that uh, there were some tunnels, uh, certainly uh, from outside Whitechapel towards Whitechapel in the form of the London Underground. Uh, the Underground, of course, one of the, the world's first undergrounds. Uh, it's it's a theory that Druitt's may have uh, made his way down these tunnels at night time and into Whitechapel. But um, again, it, it would have been quite dangerous because uh, they'd have been very busy 24 hours, seven days a week, really. So uh, that's the, it is a theory, but um, some people uh, have been looking into the story from all angles. Uh, even the FBI got involved in, in 1988 with their own theories. And, we do know that um, we mentioned this German vessel, the Seraph. Uh, at the same time, in Dusseldorf, in Germany, similar murders were taking place. And again, it does point to this German character, who again was never, ever found. Uh, but again, it's sheer speculation. But uh, it, it could be. It may have been a German character who had, uh, it may have been a ship's doctor. With a hatred for women, it could have been. It's possible. For us who have never been to the Whitechapel area, is it around water? Is it near a shipyard? Where is it actually located in London? Right. Well, uh, Whitechapel has changed an awful lot since 1888. Uh, redevelopment, of course. Uh, I mean, the housing for that period of time was, there were slums, really, really slum housing. Also, in World War II, of course, London was, was badly bombed by the Luftwaffe. Uh, in terms of its area, if you can imagine Tower Bridge and the Tower of London on the River Thames, uh, Whitechapel starts from the eastern end of the Tower Bridge itself. Um, it's an area about uh, four miles by, by, by five miles, but living there in 1888 were 90,000 people, 90,000 people, uh, and this huge influx of Romanian, Polish, and Russian Jews. It was called Outcast London. Um, the tour guides that will take you on the tours nowadays, what they tend to do is bring lots of photographs in that period of time uh, because, uh, for instance, the uh, two of the murder scenes are now housing estates, if you will, changed completely. But uh, it is, uh, of course, now actually quite a pleasant place to be, really. It's uh, been well and truly redeveloped and, of course, nothing like 1888 Whitechapel. Let's get to a question from Gail. Gail is asking in the SOR Space Travelers Club, these women were survivors, so it seems unlikely they would submit quietly. Plus, long dresses and complicated undergarments would have made it very difficult to kill these women, as he did without commotion. Could he have been quickly immobilizing them before his butchering? Yes. He would pounce from the shadows very, very quick, really quick. Um, remember there's people living very very near where the murders are taking place he was so quick what he would do put his hand over the mouth uh, bring the head back and then cut the throat from left to right and as the blood was pumping out of them he would then drop the body he would then lift the skirts and petticoats right up and then commit his barbarous act of butchery uh, again it was the speed, Dave, which seemed to uh, shock everyone because the very first murder, Polly Ann Nichols, was done right next to a house called the Essex Wharf Building where there were 
some 30 people living in it, and they didn't hear a single sound, not even a scream or a cry. Uh, so it, the Ripper must have silenced his victim first by putting the hand over the mouth and stopping any form of cry for help. Mario is asking, do you think he was a police officer? But I'd like to expand on that question. Do you think maybe he may have blended in simply because he may have had a police officer's outfit or dress in order to escape so quickly? Well, that's a very good question. Uh, we do know that our five witnesses, our five witnesses mentioned that the person's the person they saw was wearing a deer stalker hat, a bit like Sherlock Holmes, if you will. Um, a cape, a bit like, um, uh, almost like a, a greyish brown type cape. But the last murder, Hutchinson mentioned a gentleman wearing a top hat, uh, almost like a dinner suit. And certainly he, uh, went into Mary Kelly's room that night. So therefore, you see, it, it just opened another avenue. Um, Elizabeth Long said she thought this person was foreign. When I say foreign, uh, German or Dutch or Romanian, but Hutchinson said the person he saw was definitely a gentleman with highly polished shoes, um, cravat, uh, and this top hat but he kept his head quite low but he he did notice that he had like a pencil thin moustache with curled ends in fact looking a bit like druids that was found in the river uh, some four weeks later shiny shoes in an area of poverty sounds like somebody of influence or money do you think yes that def- this, definitely this- wealth yeah. Do you think this was somebody from maybe a good part of town who was trying to rid the White Chapel area of its notoriety, shall we say? Very hard to say, Dave. Really hard to say, actually. Uh, certainly, um, to commit these murders, you've got to be a very, very aggressive person. And let's be honest, quite a nasty person. But uh, all five witnesses... Um, really looking at someone that uh, they never really got a chance to take a good look at. And for all we know, the, the gentleman that night with uh, with Mary Kelly may have uh, been serviced by her and then left because Hutchinson left uh, after 15 minutes of waiting. He thought, oh, no, at that time, I'm just going to go home. So she may have found someone else afterwards. We just don't know. That's what makes the whole story so fascinating. We just don't know, Dave. Joe has a question in the SOR Space Travelers Club. He is asking, how did the name Jack the Ripper come about? Right. Uh, A letter was sent to the Central News Agency in the City of London from a person that claimed to be Jack the Ripper. Um, He had used uh, a red ink. He said that... uh, he would like to use some blood, but uh, it dried up too quickly. Many people believe that this letter was actually sent by a journalist to uh, really whip up the story because the whole story hit the city of London and then it hit the world's press as well, uh, mainly because of the speed and the fact that the murders had taken place under the very eyes of the local police. And uh, the whole British press really ridiculed uh, Sir Charles Warren, uh, the uh, 
commander of the Metropolitan Police, uh, they really ridiculed him. And uh, lots of very, very cruel statements were uh, mentioned. And that's why he actually did resign his position. But um, that letter, many people believe, was a hoax. And uh, as I mentioned before, they did find DNA on the back of the stamp. Uh, and that was uh, certainly a postmistress from Bishopsgate, which is in Whitechapel Post Office. Uh, in the case of George Lusk, the uh, vigilante uh, organiser, he received a kidney, a human kidney, in a box uh, that came from, again, Jack the Ripper, the person that said he was Jack the Ripper. It was indeed a human kidney. And they believe it actually came from Catherine Eddowes. It was removed perfectly. And he uh, said that I'll send an ear next time. But uh, the kidney was proved to be definitely human. Uh, whether it came from Catherine, we'll never, ever know. But uh, certainly it was a human kidney. And once again, there are no clues as to why he just stopped. Well... Uh, again, experts believe that uh, had it been the German sailor, his vessel uh, uh, made its way down to South America and didn't come back to London. In the case of Druid, who was found dead in the River Thames uh, four weeks after the murders, uh, Dr. Tumty went back to America and he was never seen again, never heard of again, actually. Aaron Kuzminski was found to be completely mentally insane and was in a, uh, a mental home. Uh, Dr. Donson uh, actually converted to Christianity after uh, these these events, and the royal family conspiracy. Well, that's that was more or less phased out because certainly Prince Leopold Victor was actually at Balmoral Castle for two of the murders. He couldn't have committed the murder. Um, again, Dave, what makes this whole story so fascinating is I don't think any of us will ever know the name. Or indeed, the, the person known simply as Jack the Ripper. What was the local churches and authorities saying to the people at this time in regards to this case? Well, the, the, they were deeply upset, deeply upset. I mean, it, it, but uh, Whitechapel Turner later became a, a real tourism destination. People from outside uh, London would come down to London specifically to look at the murder scenes. Uh, it seemed to whip up a huge amount of interest. And, uh, of course, it also highlighted the terrible living conditions that people were living in in Whitechapel at that period of time. I mean, even nowadays in the 21st century, the story is just as gripping as it was in 1888. And uh, many, many people have written books about the murders, but no one, no one can actually personally identify Jack the Ripper. As I say, the most popular suspects would have been Druitt, uh, with his knowledge of the medical background, his hatred for women. They say he was a homosexual. Uh, he had failed as a doctor, but would have had some. Would have worked in a mortuary in his uh, student training. Doctor Tumblety. Well, he was another very, very uh, unusual character. He had a hatred for women, but also liked to display in in uh, medical jars female anatomy. Uh, i.e. uteruses, he used to put them on display at dinner parties. Uh, Kuzminski, well, he worked at Spitalfields Markets. Uh, he would, as you quite rightly said, Dave, would have worked with uh, sheep, cattle, 
and uh, indeed pigs. But again, uh, human anatomy is different to animal anatomy. But uh, the uterus uh, and kidneys were removed so professionally by someone that knew exactly where to, to look for them, but did it so quickly, really, really quickly, with this very, very sharp mortuary knife. What is your personal theory on why he quit, Simon? Could it have been something that maybe the police were getting too close? Maybe he got bored? Maybe he fled the country? What is your personal theory out of everything that you have researched on this? Right. My personal assumption is I'm going to go for Aaron Kosminski. Um, he, uh, after the murders, he was found uh, walking around the streets. He was eating off the streets. Uh, he was acting very, very irresponsibly. He was fighting people. Uh, although it could never be proved, uh, certainly uh, um, they did bring in our five witnesses, and they said, well, he looked a bit like um, he looked a bit like the characters that had been seen in the first four murders, but not the fifth murder which Hutchinson uh, really um, many people do look on Kosminski as being the main suspect. Uh, but the fact he was uh, put in a mental asylum afterwards and the murder stopped um, may or may not have a link, Dave. We really don't know, but uh, it, it just makes the whole story so fascinating. The fact that he wasn't caught, the fact that he was so professional, so fast. I think your theory of wearing the rubber soles was probably there. Uh, having the uh, the mortuary knife, he would have had access to uh, medical equipment. Uh, so it could have been Druitt. Druitt was found in the river. Uh, four weeks later, he'd taken his own life, and they believe the body had been in the water probably for the, the same period of time that uh, after the, the Kelly murder at Miller's Court. More questions coming from our audience. We're going to head over to Twitter at hashtag Spaced Out Radio. Eric is asking, were there any other copycat murders in London years after these events or even in recent times? Yes, they were uh, in more recent times, actually, Dave. In fact, um, the Public Records Office have just released uh, information from 1942, many, many years after the murders, of course, um, some eight women were found to be terribly mutilated and uh, terribly uh, murdered in the blackout. Of course, in, in World War II, London was a target for the Luftwaffe, the German Air Force. And as a result, we had what's called the blackout. Every night, all the street lamps are turned off. You'd even have to, you'd have to close your curtains and uh, very, very strict laws on having lights, etc. Now, these eight women uh, were found in a terribly mutilated state all around the city of London, mainly in hotel rooms, and they caught the culprit in this case. He was a corporal in the Royal Air Force. He was a chap called Cummings, and the only reason they caught him, he was very, very quick, very, very fast. And uh, the Royal Air Force at that period of time had a rubber sole type shoe. So he would also be very, very quick. He was 22 years old. He used to boast to everyone that he was um, a ladies man. Uh, but he would cut the throat and then mutilate. And one of his uh, victims, God bless her, was uh, a a 19-year-old girl who had enticed back to a hotel room. He cut her throat and opened her up and left her on the bed. But uh, the ninth murder was going to actually capture him because uh, 
he was dis- he was in the process of strangling this poor girl in the blackout, quite near, strangely enough, Buck's Row in Whitechapel. But he, uh, a night watchman came across him and shone his torch in his face. He let go of his victim, and the night watchman tried to grab him, but got his grabbed his gas mask, uh, which is like um, well, obviously a gas mask in case of uh, of uh, gas warfare, and ripped the gas mask off him, and it had his service number. Uh, actually in the the gas mask bag and that's how they found him uh only because his gas mask had his service number but he had committed nine murders in the city of london in the blackout and uh, just like our friend jack the ripper he was very quick and very fast but they they uh, he was of course um, hung for the murders of these these poor women Another question coming off of Twitter. This one comes from Dennis. Dennis is asking, what does Simon, or what do you, Simon, believe of Patricia Cornwell's theory on Walter Sickert? Well, Walter Sickert certainly is um, what was brought into the equation. Brought into the equation. Uh, He was actually an artist, would you believe? A very good artist, really. Uh, But I think he was too much of a gentleman, to be honest with you. Um, slightly effeminate, if you will, quite, quite, quite effeminate. And uh, I don't think he had that aggressive, that aggressive uh, sort of uh, attitude which the Ripper would have had. He would have been a very, very aggressive person. And Sickert, to me, doesn't really seem to have that sort of uh, aggression in him, really. But he was certainly brought into the equation. He was definitely brought into the equation. This also leads to Dawn's question in the Spreaker chat room. She is asking, have they ever ruled out H.H. Holmes? Oh, gosh, well, he was indeed, uh, he was brought into the equation. There's been so many people, but uh, no, no, no. Again, I think they're clutching at straws there, really. He's the sort of chap that would have uh, found the murders very, very interesting. There's no two ways about it. Uh, And it's almost like a Holmes-type character, really, isn't it? But but no, no, I, I don't believe that, really. This is such an interesting, interesting case. And let's start to switch over to the paranormal side of Jack the Ripper because now we're well over a hundred and almost 130 years since this happened. 129 to be exact. How haunted are these areas from the ghosts of his victims? Well, um, you'll find in the city of London every night they have uh, guided tours called Ripper Tours. Um, I've done quite a few myself, of course, but there's, there's many guides who do them. Um, there's been a lot of redevelopment, a huge amount of redevelopment in that part of the world. Um, the Murder Van Chapman is now a brewery. They make uh, good quality lagers and beers there, actually. But the uh, the staff that work at the Burner Street brewery um they of course have night staff that work there as well and there has been stories of a woman in victorian dress uh, that's been seen uh near the brewing area where the vats are and uh, she's been seen by one or two of the uh, the staff at night time uh when she does make an appearance it gets very very cold apparently uh but um it's uh, a story that is well known in that in that part of uh, of, of Whitechapel. Uh, certainly, 
uh, they say the River Thames, uh, the area where John Druitt was found. Uh, there's been stories of a, a man in that in, in the sort of clothing he would wear that's been seen uh, sitting quite near the river, uh, an area where he would have actually jumped into the river all those years ago uh, with a, a cigarette holder and a pencil-thin moustache with curled ends wearing a top hat, who's been known to actually walk through the, the, the actual um, embankment walls of the River Thames. So do you think that Jack the Ripper's ghost still is looking for victims? I really don't know that, Dave. I do know that uh, if you and I were to go there tonight, and you can imagine the pea soup fog around your ankles, you can imagine going down those cobbled streets, those little giddles and alleyways, I think it would create an atmosphere. It would definitely create an atmosphere, and you'd be looking over your shoulder all the time. But, of course, nowadays, with modern surveillance, all those streets have closed-circuit television, and uh, the police can monitor all the movements. In fact, uh, when I've done tours in London, uh, it's quite funny. I've talked to some of the officers afterwards. They said, oh, Simon, it's not a problem. We can track you from London Bridge right into Whitechapel and right out again. And uh, modern surveillance is fantastic nowadays. It really is. Have any of those cameras ever caught history from the past? Um. Not those cameras, but certainly at Windsor Castle, which is quite some distance away from Whitechapel, of course. Um, uh, Windsor Castle, of course, is royal residence, and you have uh, in the British Army there's some very famous regiments called Foot Guards, uh, Coldstream Guards, Grenadier Guards, Scots Guards, Welsh, Irish, and uh, Coldstream. And uh, the guardsmen that have been actually at Windsor. Uh, there's been many cases dating right back to the 1920s of guardsmen actually freezing with fear when they seen Anne Boleyn, of course, uh, King Henry, one of King Henry's wives, with uh, holding her head under her arm and seeing her float across the cobblestones towards the sentry posts. Uh, this has been reported on quite a few occasions, and one guard was so terrified, uh, the poor lad, of course, rushed into the guardroom, and uh, he was going to be court-martialed until his uh, the sergeant in charge of the platoon said, don't worry, I too have seen the ghosts of Windsor Castle. So he wasn't actually court-martialed because uh, it was put down as a paranormal experience. That just is unbelievable on how he was just able to disappear. Amber is asking in the chat room, when you looked at all the reports from the past to the present, were there any type of unmistakable stamp marks, maybe from Freemasonic rituals or symbols, compasses, the trademark of Freemasonry, anything like that? Well, uh, Dr. Donson was actually a Freemason. He certainly was, uh, but he suffered from, from ill health. He wouldn't have been able to run very, very quickly. Uh, but in the case of Catherine Eddowes, she had a nose cut off, her right ear cut off, her kidney removed, and her intestines opened and thrown over her shoulder. There was also on her cheeks two V-shaped uh, cuts. And uh, that night, I mean, uh, she, uh, her body was in a 
terrible, terrible state. Probably the most mutilated of the uh, outside victims, apart from Mary Kelly. Let's get back to the paranormal side of everything. So when you take your tours, and obviously, as you said, this area has become a hot tourist attraction even 129 years later because the story is never solved. When you do your tours around there, what do you tell people? What do you explain to them, or how do they approach you about wanting to do the Jack the Ripper tour? Well, uh, I give them the, the, the whole story that you've just heard, actually. We look into the lives of these poor women. But I like to bring in the ghost stories as well, because I find that ghost stories, Dave, really do bring out the best of a, a good good audience, and you can really capture their attention. Uh, in Whitechapel to this very, very day, there's story of a ghost coach and um it's a brilliant story actually which took place at a public house called the britannia which would have been used by possibly jack the ripper but certainly by his victims and uh, a most amazing story of an eyewitness called john t martindale and way back in 1888 uh, whilst these murders were taking place he would make his way to the city of london and he'd watch the ships come in, laden with cotton from Louisiana and Mississippi and Egypt. Uh, he made his way to the uh, uh, to the Ten Bells in uh, in uh, Whitechapel, and the landlord knew him very very well. His coach arrived. He rushed into the building. It was quite a cold day, really, and he went to the fire to feel the rays of heat from the fire. And the landlord was called John Nicholson. And Nicholson had a, a nice warm meal ready for John T. Martindale and indeed a, a drink. But he saw that John T. was a little bit agitated. Uh, what's the problem, Mr. Martindale? Well, it's me wife. I'm really worried about me wife. She's expecting our first child. And I promise to be by her side when she gives birth. Oh, don't worry. There's a nice meal for you there, said uh, the landlord, Nicholson. And your coaching horses will be ready very soon. They've just gone around the back of the back of the inn. Your horses are being fed and watered. Uh, John T. drank his meal very, very quickly, and uh, he started to pace the room, looking out the window, waiting for his coach to arrive. He was very, very worried about his wife for obvious reasons. It became dark, and he looked out, and there was snow in the air. And as he looked again, he just saw six horses and the coach materialized from nowhere. He thought, ah, that's my coach. He left the inn at great speed and climbed inside the coach. Inside the coach, it smelt very damp. It smelt very, very musty. As his eyes became accustomed to the light, he realized there were two people in there with him that gave the impression of being female. Uh, both had long Victorian bonnets. Sitting next to him was a lady with a long Victorian bonnet that gave the impression she was sleeping. Right in front of him was another female with a long Victorian bonnet hiding her face with a baby wrapped up in a blanket on her, on her knee. He tried to get a conversation going. Uh, excuse me, ladies, uh, would you mind, please, if I just open the window? It's not very nice in here. No answer. It was like talking to two statues. The coach jutted forward and made its way down the cobble streets of Whitechapel, past Spitalfields Market, very near Buck's Row. Again, Martindale made another request. Excuse me, ladies, would you mind if I just open the window, please? It's not very nice in here. It's very damp and musty. No answer. In a fit of rage, 
John T. Martindale stood up inside the coach and reached for the leather strap that was attached to the coach window. He tugged the strap, and to his horror, the actual window frame was rotten. It came away in his hand. He then heard a scream. He turned to his right, and the woman sitting next to him slowly raised her face, and where there should have been a face was a dark, hollow cavity. Martindale screamed in terror. He fell out of the coach and fell into the road and was knocked unconscious. He came round some five, ten minutes later with a rather nasty head wound in a swirling, swirling blizzard. He trudged through the snow-drenched f- snow streets of Whitechapel and back to the Three Tons public house. Nicholson, the landlord, said, Mr. Martindale, where have you been? Let me address that head wound. Well, I got in a coach. This woman shed no face. This woman shed a baby. Mr. Martindale, calm down. Calm down. Your coach and horses are still around the back of the inn. And if you look outside, the snow is so deep and so thick that any coach that arrived would have definitely left an imprint in the snow. Martindale was convinced that that night he got into a coach, a ghost coach. What we do know is that year was 1888. In 1887, the uh, London to Oxford coach left Whitechapel with an elderly lady on board, a young woman and her baby, six horses and a driver. To get to Oxford, it had to go to a place called Geoffrey Hill, which is exposed. In high winds, the wind caught the coach and blew it down the ravine, killing an elderly lady, a young woman and her baby. Martindale was absolutely convinced that, that night he got into the ghost coach of Whitechapel, London. Wow. That is scary. That is very, very scary. What we do know is that Martindale got back home just in time to witness the birth of his baby daughter, but he never forgot that encounter. And it's, it's a well-known story in Whitechapel to this very day. I want to go back to Jack the Ripper for a couple of seconds here. Because sure. I have a couple of questions that I, I honestly forgot to ask, so I do want to get into those. There are so many theories out there on who he is, what was he about. We've gone over a plethora of theories tonight. Yeah. Do you think that there is a correct theory out there as to what truly happened to him and who he truly was? Again, Dave, we'll never, ever know. Uh, That's what makes the whole story so fascinating. Uh, If you look at the profile, we're looking at a maniac. We're looking at someone who hates women. We're looking at someone that's got uh, knowledge of medical equipment. Uh, But we're looking at uh, someone who's very, very cunning, very, very fast. But someone who's basically very, very dangerous. Uh, I'm sure that in the next world, uh, who knows, we might come across him, but uh, he, he's certainly uh, a very nasty character. And where he's going, it'll be very, very hot. So you are 100% convinced this case, no matter how advanced technology gets, will always remain unsolved? 
That's right, Dave. Mainly because we haven't, uh, we have got DNA, of course, but uh, what could be quite interesting would be to try and find Dr. Tumblety's grave. Because one thing I did forget to mention is when Anne Chapman was murdered, she had two rings on her fingers, and those rings disappeared. Who knows? It may have been Tumblety, and many people have mentioned that if they could find his grave and get permission to exhume the grave, if those rings are found in the coffin, who knows? That might just throw a completely different light on the whole subject. You know, it also reminds me of a story, Werewolf in London. You know, and, Oh, yes. And... And I know it's a fictional story and everything, but yes. what if this yeah. person had the ability to be transforming himself or maybe being possessed where he doesn't even know what he's doing and that's why he's able to get away with this so quickly? Well, it's, it, it does seem as if he was like, uh, con- well, carefully planned every single murder. Uh Obviously, deranged has got to be deranged, but uh, he had to have one eye on people around him. Uh, he had, I mean, PC Watkins was only a few yards walking with his back to him whilst he was removing uh, Catherine Eddowes' kidney and uh, taking a mucite in the poor girl. Um, he was very cool, very calm, and very, very collective. Uh, but uh, as we said before, Dave, we just really, really don't know. The paranormal side of everything as we switch back to the ghost, because I I love a good ghost story, and and I know our audience does as well. Are there buildings or are there still roads from the original 1888 that have been preserved, or were they all lost in the bombing in World War II in the Battle of Britain? And were they Um, or are they still haunted? by these characters uh, spitalfield market is still there mitre square is still there but hamber street's gone bucks row has gone and so's miller's court uh but um uh, mitre square is still there although there are some very very modern buildings around it uh there's also um in mitre square a little plaque uh mentioning that uh, this is where Catherine Eddowes lost her life. Uh, but uh, there's only Spitalfields Market, which is still there, because the housing for that period of time, David, was, uh, you know, really, really run down. It had to, something had to be done. Uh, so the slum buildings were all knocked down, and uh, it's now been completely redeveloped, redeveloped. Uh, if you wanted to make a film of Jack the Ripper, you'd have to use modern technology to recreate buildings around you. Uh, you may have seen a TV show called um, Taboo, uh, BBC television Taboo. It's a very, very good gripping. I'm sure Canadian TV will have that, definitely. Uh, but uh, what they've done, they've recreated 1888 uh, London. And uh, the only buildings that uh, are still there from that period of time would be Big Ben, of course, that was built in 1855. Uh, St. Paul's Cathedral, lovely 1753 building. Uh, So there's a lot of London still there, but uh, Whitechapel, there's been a lot of redevelopment in that particular part of London. Do you believe, though, that the ghosts are still walking around there? And has anybody ever caught any proof? 
No one's ever caught any proof, Dave. But, of course, there's been many, many murders over the years in the city of London. It's a massive place. Uh, but uh, no one's ever really uh, tried to, show us say, uh, contact Jack the Ripper uh, through paranormal means. Uh, that would be quite fascinating. It really, really would, particularly if you were to go to, shall I say, uh, I mentioned before the Britannia Public House and the Ten Bells. They're still there. Their Victorian public houses, which are still there, actually in Whitechapel. I'd be inclined to use one of those public houses, uh, get permission of the landlord and bring in some professional mediums, some really, really good ones, and then see what actually happens. Who knows? Perhaps the spirit of Jack the Ripper could be contacted. It's possible. Has there been in the Smithsonian or any museums or anything, any of the evidence physically saved from these crimes? Well, uh, it's such a fascinating subject. Uh, Scotland Yard say that they've got the mortuary knife. Uh, they say they've got it. Uh, it was certainly found uh, in Spitalfields. But again, that's sheer speculation. The cloak that was worn by Catherine Eddowes, um, that uh, was bought by a, that was actually um, bought by a private collector. And they did look for DNA on it, but it had been touched by so many people, by so many people, that it would have been cross-contaminated time and time and time again. Uh, they did find the blood of Catherine Eddowes on it, mind you. And they did. Uh, they also looked at a lady um, who lives in the White area called Kosminski, and she gave a blood sample. And from that blood sample, they, they, they thought they, they did, in fact, find a match with Aaron Kuzminski. Mm-hmm. But uh, many experts believe that the DNA would have been so old that it would have been practically impossible to, uh, to make a connection, really. I think everyone was hoping and praying they could find Kuzminski's uh, DNA actually on the shore. But it had been touched by so many people, Dave, that it would have been cross-infected. Vivian made a comment in the SOR Space Travelers, but I think it's worthy of turning into a question. She is saying, do you think this will ever be solved, or is it good to solve this crime? Because solving it may not be the best for tourism. Uh, Dave, they will never, ever solve the crime. Uh, It's impossible. Uh, we'd need a time machine. We'd have to use a time machine. Uh, all the artifacts in that period of time have gone. Well, the, they say they got the knife, but uh, again, I think that's sheer speculation, really. It's certainly uh, a 10-inch long knife. It's a mortuary knife. Uh, but uh, in terms of tourism, uh, Jack the Ripper is worth an absolute fortune. It really, really is worth a fortune. Uh, but no, we will never, ever solve the crime. I, I don't think it can be done. I know Patricia Cornwell, very, very clever lady, brilliant uh, writer, and her views regard Walter Sickert. Uh, but again, that's just another stab in the dark, if you will. London is a very old city, one of the oldest in the Western culture, in Western civilization. There's a lot of ghosts and spirits walking around there. For those who have never been there, how haunted is it? Uh, City of London, of course, one of the most famous cities in the world. Uh, There's lots of great ghost stories from there, but also up in Edinburgh in Scotland. But one of the, the most haunted cities in the whole of Great Britain 
is the city of York. And what makes York so unique is way back in World War II, it wasn't bombed. So therefore, all the streets are from a different century. And by far, one of the most interesting stories, Dave, if you don't mind me mentioning it, is the story of the cellars in York. Now, 2,000 years ago, Great Britain was ruled by the Romans, apart from Scotland. They actually built a wall called Hadrian's Wall to keep the Scots out. Uh, One of the largest garrisons in Britain was the city of York. It was called Eberarkham. We're going to turn the clock back now to 1952, and a young lad of the name of Harry Martindale, no relation to our jaunty from the city of London, but Harry Martindale. And Harry is a plumber's mate. He's working in a cellar behind this gorgeous building called York Minster, beautiful Gothic cathedral. His job is to install central heating. He's deep in the cellar. He has a blowtorch. He has some copper tubing. He's heating the copper tubing to bend it to install central heating. All of a sudden, he hears the sound of a trumpet, a very loud trumpet sound that gets louder and louder. And out of the wall next to him, out of the brick wall, appears a white horse. On that white horse is a Roman soldier, followed by platoon after platoon of Roman infantry. Harry scuttles into the corner of the cellar, terrified, and watches these Roman soldiers walk out of the wall. The apparition lasts for a good five minutes. He sees platoon after platoon of Roman infantry come through the cellar wall and out of the wall right next to him. He glances at them and they all look to be very thin, very, very emaciated. And he notices he could only see them up to their knees. The last Roman soldier disappears through the wall and with it went the sound of the trumpet. Harry swallowed deeply and thought, oh, God, how can I explain that one? In sheer fear, he rushed up the cellar steps and told his boss. His boss said, no, no, lad, you get back down there again. We've got to finish this job. We've got a contract. I can't, I can't get down there. I'm terrified. You're sacked. And the poor lad lost his job. He made his way through the city of York and popped into a a gorgeous old inn called the Old Star Inn. He walked up to the bar and ordered a stiff drink. He needed one after what he'd just seen. At the bar was a young lad, a journalist from the York Evening Press. His words were, here lad, you look like you've just seen a ghost. Actually, I've seen over 80 of them. Go on lad, tell me about it. And he told him all about the Roman soldiers. The York journalist thought, well, it's getting towards Halloween. I think I'll publish it. And he published the story. When the whole story got into the York Evening Press, the city of York laughed at Martindale. They found his story hilarious. However, after two weeks, no one laughed at Harry because some more work took place in the cellars of the uh, the old house. And they found they removed a lot more soil and they found the area where Harry had seen his Roman soldiers. They found a beautiful Roman road and this very large Roman stone tablet with the words 
Eberarkham. They had found the garrison of York, the very, very entrance to the garrison of York, where those Roman soldiers were billeted 2,000 years ago. Uh, university professors went to see Harry, and he explained the Roman soldiers he saw didn't look like, uh, shall we say, uh, Hollywood-type Roman soldiers. They all had... Uh, what he called leather kilts on. They had round shields. They all looked to be very thin, very emaciated, but also slightly dark skinned. And many historians and professors believe that what Harry saw that day was the ninth Hispanic Legion leaving the city of York for Carlisle, the, uh, the Scottish borders where they were wiped out by the Celts, the Scots. And uh, many people believe that Harry Somehow, with his blowtorch and indeed his metal piping, he'd somehow opened a time warp to an era and a different time. But he was absolutely convinced that that day he saw those Roman soldiers warp through the wall and straight past him. That almost reminds me of a story Eric Cooper, a good friend of this show's, told me about his time in the U.S. Army in Germany where him and a good friend were walking down the street and they kind of looked down the alley and everything kind of went black and white and as they looked down the alley they saw Adolf Hitler and his troops around him about to get into the limousine and him and Hitler actually made eye contact. You know, I mean, when you start getting into soldiers and parts of history along those lines, it's amazing what can still be imprinted on the walls, on the streets, in the air, you know, of that piece of land. Incredible. Um, Of course, in my job, uh, Dave, as a professional tour guide, um, I need stories all the time, and I find the best way is to talk to local people. I met a a marvellous lady in a town called Blackburn in the county of Lancashire, and uh, she'd been working in her garden one day. It was a beautiful summer's day, and she started to dig in her vegetable area. And as she turned the soil over, up came a cannonball, followed by some small musket balls, followed by a broken spur. Uh, Now, way back in the year 1642, the English Civil War started, and it started really because of Parliament wishing to take on the royal family. At that period of time, King Charles I ran Britain. Uh, He made all the rules, all the regulations, and Parliament, under a chap called Oliver Cromwell, thought it's about time this country was democratic, where the people voted for a government and voted for members of Parliament to make rules and regulations. The king didn't like it. So war was declared on the 2nd of October, 1642. Um, Living quite near the town of Blackburn was a very, very wealthy chap called Gilbert de Horton. And he was a very wealthy man. He wrote to the king and said, Sir, I shall take the town of Blackburn and I'll have the Royal Standard flying above it, sir, by New Year's Day, sir. He had a huge army and he uh, equipped them. He bought cannon horse, materials, and equipped a very strong army. They set off for the town of Blackburn in Lancashire on the 24th of December, 1642. They arrived at a place called Duke's Brow, overlooking the town of Blackburn, and they opened fire on the town with their cannon. Uh, The shells came raining in, sending splinters everywhere. The town of Blackburn was very, very fortunate. It was actually protected by two great generals at that period of time, General Starkey and General Shuttleworth, and they dug trenches 
and the general said, keep your heads down behind the parapets, boys. We can expect an attack at any minute. The attack never happened because on top of Duke's brow, uh, this huge argument took place. Sir, we don't mind dying for the king, sir. We don't mind dying for you, sir, but not on Christmas Eve, sir. I paid you. I paid you. I've equipped you, shouted uh, Gilbert de Horton. Sir, we're going back home, sir. And they left all their equipment on top of Duke's brow. Uh, Stark and Shuttle thought, marvellous, they're retreating. And an engagement took place on the top of Duke's brow. Lots of ammunition was used and quite a few fatalities. In 1995, this lady called Claire uh, dug her vegetable patch over. And as I said before, up came a cannonball. Up came uh, some shrapnel, some musket balls and a broken spur. She put the items in a seed tray and then made her way into a front room. Uh, Claire, to this very day, runs a guest house, a small hotel. The telephone rang, and on the end of the telephone was an Australian voice. Uh, Hello there, Uh, my wife and kids are coming over this afternoon. Uh, Any chance of a a room for the night, please, my wife and three kids? No problem at all, she said. And on that note, I'm going to get you to hold on to that story. We're going to hop out for our final break of the night with Simon Entwistle, all the way from the United Kingdom. His website, if you want to check it out, is called tophattours.co.uk. Especially if you're making travel plans over to London this year, this is a tour you are going to want to take. And he promises to wear the top hat. At least I hope so. We want to say hello to everyone listening in at Diamond's Pub in Diamond, Illinois tonight. Checking us out for the first time. We will be back with more Space Out Radio right after this. The SOR Sightlines is a place for you to find answers to your strange experiences. Hi there, this is Mike Schmidt. If you have had an encounter with ghosts, UFOs, Bigfoot, ETs, or anything else that doesn't make sense... Head to spacedoutradio.com and file a Sightlines report. All information you give is 100% confidential, and I will personally help you find the answers you need. SOR Sightlines. Your answers are a click away. Have you got your Cosmic Passport? If you need one, tune in to Cosmic Passport on Spaced Out Weekend. This is Elizabeth Anglin, ET experiencer, spirit medium, and host of Cosmic Passport. Each weekend, I'll be bringing you interviews and support from other paranormal experiencers and the best in intuitive spiritual guidance from across the globe. It's all happening starting at 9 p.m. Pacific Time, midnight Eastern, on spacedoutradio.com. Hi there. I'm Butch Witkowski, lead investigator with you 4 cop On the final Monday of every month, you can listen to me and host Dave Scott on Spaced Out Radio's Strange Days. We're going to get to the heart of the matter when it comes to what's happening out there. People are seeing and experiencing things from ET contact to Bigfoot, and I want to hear about it. Your experiences are what we investigators need to help solve these unknown mysteries. So tune in at spacedoutradio.com to the final Monday of every month from Butch Wachowski's Strange Days. Visit purpleplates.com today. For over 40 years, the Purple Energy Plates have been delivering amazing results for their many customers. Inspired by the great genius Nikola Tesla, the harmony, healing, and energetic effects of the plates have proven over and over to be beneficial and often miraculous to thousands of customers. With their money-back guarantee and the many benefits, how can you afford not to get one? Check their site for daily specials and choose from their many energy products. You won't be sorry. Visit them today at 
purpleplates.com for mind, body, and spirit, and expect a miracle. This is your medium, Joanna, from Spaced Out Weekend, Two Mediums and a Large. I would love it if you would come and join us with host James Tyson every other Sunday on Spaced Out Weekend. Together, we will take your calls and your questions live. Our goal is to provide you with a positive outlook on deep questions that you may have. Questions regarding love, relationships, money, or whatever else is on your mind. Come and check us out at spacedoutradio.com. This is Eric Markham, news editor for Spaced Out Radio's The Encounter Online. We have put together a great team of writers and journalists from all over the world to bring you top quality paranormal stories from alien encounters to the latest conspiracies. You won't find any of that fake news here. True stories and top-notch reporting as we look to bring these experiences to the mainstream. The Encounter online only at spacedoutradio.com. Patrolling the Pacific Northwest, we are always on the lookout for the strange and unassuming stories that real people are experiencing. Hi, I'm Vincent Zunza from Pacific North Weird. Me and Alexandra Sullivan have teamed to bring to you those odd stories that never seem to make it into the mainstream. Stories so weird that we'll leave you scratching your head wondering, is this real? It's as real as it gets with Pacific North Weird. You can watch our videos right here at spacedoutradio.com. Become more intimate and interactive with Spaced Out Radio. Join our Space Travelers Club with your new membership. For $5 a month, we'll provide you with special access to the website, monthly prize draws from books to psychic readings, along with monthly newsletter, private interviews, and more. Sign up today to be part of Spaced Out Radio's experience. Looking for a place to advertise at a very reasonable cost? Look no further than Spaced Out Radio. SpacedOutRadio.com has an advertising tab that you can click to check out our daily, weekly, and monthly packages to play on the radio, or our website including social media. From commercial spots to banners, we have it all. Check out our competitive pricing today. Don't have time to listen to Spaced Out Radio Live? Wherever you are, the car, the office, the shower, or even if you're traveling, we're right here for you. Each Spaced Out Radio show can be found on iTunes, TuneIn, and on our YouTube channel, Spaced Out Radio Show. It's the perfect way for you to catch up on our shows. For more information, just head over to our website, spacedoutradio.com, and tune in to us today. You hear footsteps in the empty room above you. A rocking chair begins rocking by itself. Don't be afraid of the things that go bump in the night. Reach for Spirit Story Box. The iPhone app the Huffington Post UK called the only ghost hunting app you will ever need. Spirit Story Box. The spirits are telling their stories. Are you listening? Strange creatures lurking in the night, the sounds of wood knocking in the forest, odd happenings right out of a fictional world. These are the reports I love. Hi there, this is author Ronald Murphy, and I would love it if you'd join me and Spaced Out Radio host Dave Scott the second Wednesday of every month on our journey into the unknown land of cryptozoology at spacedoutradio.com. From Mothman to Frogman and everything in between, hey, they don't call me the crypto guru for nothing. Did you know that Spaced Out Radio runs seven days a week? 
Hi, it's James Tyson from Spaced Out Weekend. Every Saturday and Sunday night, starting at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern, you can join me and my guests for some great chatter about what's going on out in the universe or even in that dark part of the basement you really don't want to go back into. Well, let's find the answers to your experiences together. So come on up to Uncle Jimbo's cabin on the weekend. For more information, look us up at spacedoutradio.com. The views and opinions expressed by tonight's guest and topic of discussion do not necessarily represent the official policy or position of Spaced Out Radio. Spaced Out Weekend, Spaced Out Radio Limited, its hosts, syndicated carriers, or anyone associated with this broadcast. You're listening to Spaced Out Radio with Dave Scott. Follow Dave on Twitter at Spaced Out Radio and hashtag Spaced Out Radio. And on Facebook, Spaced Out Radio Show. Now, back to the program. Welcome back to the final hour of Spaced Out Radio tonight. I am your host, Dave Scott. Good to have you with us. Tomorrow night, a familiar voice is back. Ian Holt, the new producer for the movie Unhinged starring Mickey Rourke. We're going to talk everything paranormal. We're going to get into vampires. We're going to get into death metal music and so much more starting at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern time right here at spaceoutradio.com. We want to welcome in our terrestrial radio stations tuning us in. WQEE 99, Rock the Key, down in Noonan, Georgia. Thank you so much for tuning us in on the late night. We are also live in New Orleans on 107.7 FM, the United Public Radio Network. Good to have you along for the ride as well. We're live in Las Vegas on Renegade Talk Radio and on Revolution Radio. Remember, if you're listening in on the Double R Machine, it's a donation station financed by you, the valued listener. Head on over to freedomslips.com and donate today. Hey, and we also want to give a quick shout-out to all the patrons who are hanging out late after the bar has closed, the Diamonds Bar in Diamond, Illinois. Thank you so much for tuning us in for the first time, shutting down the bar to keep us going and listening to some really good ghost stories with Simon Entwistle. Appreciate you giving us the opportunity. Thank you so much. Also, if you want to follow us on social media, you can do so on Twitter at Spaced Out Radio. Use the hashtag Spaced Out Radio if you want to connect with me live as well during the show. Give our Facebook page a like, Spaced Out Radio Show. You can tune us in on TuneIn, download this show and others on iTunes. We're also at RadioGuide.fm, TalkStream Live, and Stitcher. Our website is SpacedOutRadio.com where we have a plethora of features for you, including joining the SOR Space Travelers Club for 5 bucks a month, and be sure you check out our news section, The Encounter Online, where we have some great stories from our editors, Eric Markham, Everett Theater, and their team of writers as well. Bill Cardwell has set the password for tonight in the SOR Space Travelers Club, Tephrochronology. Tephrochronology is your password. Be sure you use it wisely, Space Travelers, because that is your password for the night. We are talking with Simon Entwistle all the way over in London, England, the UK. We've been talking Jack the Ripper and ghost stories from abroad. Simon runs the 
Top Hat Tours, ghost hunting tours. TopHatTours.co.uk is the website. Simon, welcome back. My pleasure, Dave. The comments that are coming in from all of our listeners towards your stories tonight are absolutely amazing. And, you know, we have here a very, very brilliant audience. And they know when we have a good interview. They know when we have someone on the air who is struggling to get their story out. But man alive, the comments and the positivity that everyone is showing you tonight is phenomenal. So you're getting a lot of love from the Spaced Out Radio listeners tonight. Well, it's a pleasure to be with everyone tonight, Dave. Thank you. Continuing on with the ghost stories of the UK. During World War II, there are so many stories about paranormal activity over England. Considering how much it was bombed in the Battle of Britain, there's stories about, you know, flying over airports and nothing is there, and then flying back a few days later, and it's a spirit of activity going on. There's so many things. Stonehenge is another one. What makes the UK such a haunted place? I think it's because it's such a, an active place, really. And uh, when you look at, shall I say, uh, Canada, the USA, they're quite modern countries, really, quite modern countries. Whereas, you know, um, United Kingdom uh, goes right, right back to medieval times. In fact, we mentioned the Roman soldiers uh, 2,000 years ago. Uh, but you also mentioned World War II, uh, David, and uh, I'd like to bring a Canadian ghost into a- this. Absolutely. Really. I would love that. It's a very touching story, and of course, a lot of people forget, you know, that Canada made a huge, huge contribution to World War One and World War Two, and we're now going to go back to 1941, and uh, an uh, an RAF base in England called Linton on Ouse. And in 1941, the Royal Canadian Air Force would operate from Linton and Ouse, and of course they were going bombing missions over Germany itself. The average age of these lads would be 19, 20, 21 years old. Uh, one of the crew members on a Wellington bomber, Royal Canadian Air Force, was 19-year-old John McCarty from Ottawa, Canada. Um, he had volunteered. And uh, when he found himself over Germany, bombing Germany, uh, he was horrified to see uh, his fellow uh, crew members uh, and indeed fellow squadron members being shot down and in some cases losing their lives. Not a very pleasant thing to to witness. Uh, One bitterly cold uh, October day, he's come back from a raid on on, uh, Cologne, uh, Cologne. And uh, as the plane was about to cross the English Channel to get back to the United Kingdom, a German fighter came from nowhere and opened fire on the Wellington. Uh, Neil opened fire from the rear turret uh, to defend the aircraft and successfully hit the German aircraft. But the Wellington was on fire. The crew members managed to somehow get the fire out and crash landed at RAF Linton on Ouse. Sadly, uh, Ian was the only survivor he was the rear gunner all his crewmates lost their lives in the crash the uh RAF crash tenders arrived very very quickly to put the flames out and uh, he was rescued from the back of his turret he was deeply upset because he knew all the lads that from ottawa he'd been to school with two of them and uh 
it really upset him. Because he was medically fit, he was told he was going to go on operations again that night with another Royal Canadian crew. He was quite delighted when he was told his operations tonight had been scrubbed due to um, lack of uh, cloud cover over the target. So therefore, he was given a 24-hour pass. And that pass was to go on another mission. And that was actually into, of all places, the city of York once again. And he went straight to a public house called the Fleece Inn. The landlady of the Fleece Inn uh, knew all the Royal Canadian boys. She knew the Royal Australian Air Force lads, the RAF boys as well. And she knew they were under a lot of stress and strain. In those days, British pubs would close down at two o'clock in the afternoon due to what's called a licensing law. But with the uh, Royal Air Force and, and the Commonwealth Air Force lads, she would let them go upstairs and she'd keep serving them. Uh, young McCarty was 19 years old. He'd just witnessed the deaths of his entire crew. And the lad went on a real drinking session, uh, knocking back whiskey after whiskey. He was so inebriated, he made his way up the landing stairs to the, uh, the top to the top of the uh, the end to the toilet and halfway up the stairs he was so inebriated he fell backwards and god bless him he broke his neck um of course the uh, the aerodrome was informed about the death and his family were informed back in canada but his ghost still haunts the uh, the fleece and his ghost has been seen by quite a few people and way back in 1985 of all people a couple from Ottawa was sightseeing in the UK and uh, they booked into the Fleece Hotel and settled down for the night. And uh, it was a young couple, John and uh, Jill Hamer from Ottawa, Canada. And John heard a Canadian voice. He recognized it right away. And the words were, uh, what am I doing here? I want to get home. I need to get home. Can you help me? And uh, he got out of bed. And couldn't see him, but as he looked in the mirror, he saw the reflection of a young boy in Royal Canadian Air Force battle dress. And he wasn't scared. He was he wanted to really, really help. And uh, as he tried to talk to the lad for the mirror, uh, McCarty's ghost just disappeared. But he went back to Ottawa. And the first thing he did was contact the Royal Canadian Air Force to find the records and found this young lad's name as being McCarty and a top top medium from Canada came back with uh, the Hamer family and they exercised the building and McCarty's ghost was released to the next world but uh, it's a very tragic story but also a very true story and uh, as I say the Royal Canadian Air Force uh, they were very very brave lads and uh, their contribution to World War II was very very big extremely big that was very well done on the canadian accent there very well done all right right there we go we're even getting compliments on that right now the canadians in the house are loving it appreciate that yes a lot of our soldiers did not get to come home as much as we would have loved them to and i'm sure there is quite a few still walking around trying to figure out what is going on during world war ii when the battle of britain happened is there times when people have said they've traveled back in time or had dreams when the 
air raid sirens were coming on and they could hear the bombs falling and hitting buildings. Has that ever been reported? Uh, it's never really been reported. Uh, but uh, you imagine uh, in 1940, Britain was alone. Um, the uh, German armed forces had taken the whole of Europe over apart from Britain. Uh, Britain was quite fortunate in having uh, the Royal Air Force, of course, and a brand new aircraft called uh, a Rolls-Royce Supermarine Spitfire, which had this Rolls-Royce engine that could outfly anything the Germans had. Uh, but there are some uh, uh, um, amazing stories of uh, the Battle of Britain aerodromes. And uh, one story is actually quite quite, quite beautiful, really, of a, a Royal Air Force pilot, uh, a young 19-year-old boy, uh, who uh, met uh, a WAF, a Women's Auxiliary Air Force girl, uh, the name of uh, Annie Cresswell. And uh, he really, really did like her very, very much indeed. And uh, he was always worried about losing his life. And he, he uh, wrote a letter, like all the servicemen did, in the event of his death. Uh, in the summer of 1940, of course, uh, this Britain was at, on a knife edge. Uh, Great Britain was on a knife edge. It had to defeat the Luftwaffe because the Germans were hoping to invade. But to invade, they had to have complete air cover. And our good friends, the Canadians were there. The Royal Canadian Air Force were there. They had their own squadrons in England. The Royal Air Force were there. Royal Australian as well. And South African boys, they were all there. And the Polish lads were there as well. And they all put up a a great defence. But this young lad was called John Heskov. He was a fighter pilot with Spitfire pilot. And he... um, left this letter to uh, young, uh, young Annie in the event of his death. And he said, uh, Dear Annie, you are the love of my life. I worship the very ground you walk on. If I cannot come back in the form of a human being, I swear to you, I will come back in the form of a ghost and say goodbye to you uh, in the western billet of the, uh, of the camp, a place called Hawkins near, near Dover. Uh, I did actually see this letter and I actually met uh, Annie Cresswell's granddaughter and she said the only reason this story continues is because her grandmother became pregnant and uh, with her mother and the letter was handed down the family uh, quite a lot of the words have become quite badly smudged and uh, uh, Annie's granddaughter mentioned that when she uh, read the letter uh, her grandmother burst into tears and the tears spilled onto the, uh, the letter smudging quite a lot of the ink but apparently she saw his ghost he did come back to her and she tried to grab him and uh, each time she tried to grab him her hands went straight through him he then turned waved smiled and made his way to the next world uh, but the letter's still there and uh, i had the great pleasure of reading that letter and it was quite touching written by a boy of 19 years old who only had 15 minutes of life left in him uh, of course, the letter was posted uh, only after being confirmed that he'd been shot down and killed over the English Channel. Uh, but uh, there are some amazing stories from uh, from World War One, and again, we have a Canadian story. When I knew I was coming on the the station tonight, uh, Dave, I, th- I looked into the Canadian stories, and uh, if we go back to World War One, uh, the Canadian infantry were absolutely outstanding. In fact, the Germans called them stormtroopers. They were that good. Very, very tough lads. Very good with the bayonets. Very, very good riflemen. Now, the British government played a bit of a nasty trick on one battalion 
of uh, Canadian infantry. They were very, very professional, uh, extremely tough. Now, for some reason, just after World War I finished, Great Britain was very, very seriously considering invading Russia. Yes, invading Russia. Uh, they were actually considering it because they looked on Russia as a bit of a threat at that period of time. And, of course, Britain was a superpower. Um, they kept this Canadian battalion in reserve and the Canadian boys all wanted to go home. They were sent to a place called North Wales to a, uh, a beautiful place called Bottle Withen, Bottle Withen Castle, which had been used for infantry training in World War I. Uh, you imagine 800 young Canadian boys being kept in Wales and they kept on saying, Hey, uh, we need to go home. We need to get back home. Uh, this is got, you know, we need to see our families, our children. We need to get back home. And the British government said, well, don't worry, there's a ship coming in next week, uh, the city of Liverpool, and that will take you back home again. Well, a week passed, another week passed, and these boys were saying, look, we need to get home, the war's finished, we need to get back home again. Well, they rioted, because they thought, that's it, we're going to go back home, regardless of what, what, what's going to happen. They rioted, and the British guards actually opened fire, killing 14 young Canadian infantrymen. Uh, of course, the officers managed to quell things down, and the battalion did go home, minus these young boys that had been killed. Their only crime was to riot and try and get back home to Canada. But what is very, very sad, at Bodlewithen Castle, all these boys are buried there, and the graves of these young Canadian lads, all it says is, died of influenza. In many ways, these poor lads were actually practically murdered. Um, they only wanted to get back home to Canada. Now, Bodlewithen Castle is a beautiful Welsh castle, and it's said the ghosts of these young lads still haunt the castle itself. There's been many stories of uh, a North American Canadian accent being heard in the grounds of the dead of night, and all these boys wanted was to go home, Dave. That's all they wanted. But uh, I look at it really as a very, very tragic uh, event that should have been avoided, really. You hear of other countries doing that. You don't expect those on your own side to be able to do that either. You don't expect that at all. They were just, just young boys. And uh, last year I went to a place called Ypres um, in uh, France, and they have the Menin Gate there. It's a huge, huge uh, monument to the many, many boys that have lost their lives. And uh, I went to a place called Beaumont Hamel, uh, which is a battlefield. And the Canadian government have actually bought a large section of the battlefield. They've actually bought it as a memorial to the newfoundlanders. Uh, again, very, very brave lads. And it's classed as Canadian sovereign country uh, they've actually bought it uh, because at Bowman Hamill uh, these stormtroopers, these young lads uh, thousands upon thousands were killed in one day trying to storm the German trenches and uh, they did take the German trenches but with terrible, terrible losses and as I said before uh, the whole world owes Canada an awful lot in, uh, you know we look at war films they tend to be American or British you don't see many Canadian war films and uh, uh, even on D-Day you look at Juno Beach the first boys ashore were Canadian, uh, not American or British, but Canadian, and they got inland a lot quicker than the uh, 
Americans and the British. You know, very, very good troops, extremely professional as well. Well, our boys had a good taste for mustard gas. They eat that stuff up oh, like like gosh. sausage. You know what I'm saying? Very, very, very much so. Yes, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Hey, I want to get to some more hauntings that you do on your okay. tour, if you don't mind. Okay. I would love to no, learn. No. I would love to learn about the Pendle Witch. Right. Well, we're looking at one of the most famous stories in Great Britain. Uh, we'll turn the clock back to 1603, Dave. At that period of time, we had um, a great queen on the throne of England called Queen Elizabeth I. She led by example. She defeated the Spanish Armada in 1588 and was loved by the people of England. When she died, she had to be replaced by the next person in line, who was none other than King James VI of Scotland, who then became King James I of England. Uh, this man was absolutely paranoid about witchcraft. He not only believed that witches existed, he believed they were actually out to get him. So when he became King of England, he wrote a book called the Demonology Book. And you can buy that Demonology Book today from any leading bookshop. As you pick it up, how to find a witch, how to try a witch, and most importantly, how to eradicate a witch. Throughout the whole length of Great Britain, there's a very, very famous hill called Pendle Hill, and I'm looking at it right now. Uh, it's quite a large hill. It looks like a huge slug, if you will, shaped a bit like a huge slug. In the year 1603, surrounding that uh, hill would be a deep forest called the Forest of Pendle. Living in the Forest of Pendle, away from society, were a group of people, mainly women. Two of them were over 85 years old, Bessie Chattox and Demdike. What made them so unusual is they were both over 85 years old. In the year 1612, you'd be very, very lucky to see your 35th birthday. Remember, no medicines, no hospitals, and uh, of course, uh, uh, no surgeons. So therefore, life would be a lottery. Demdike and Chattox were over 85 years old. Demdike lived in a small stone cottage called Malkin Tower. It sounds great, doesn't it? But Malkin Tower would have been a hovel, a one-roomed limestone hovel. She had lost her husband, but living with her was her daughter Elizabeth, and she had three children, James, Alison, and Jeanette Device. Living nearby was this other very, very elderly lady, called Bessie Chattox and her daughter Anne Redfern. But our story starts on the 18th of March, 1612, when young Alison Device, granddaughter of Demdike, had a walk along this hill called Pendle Hill. She had the misfortune of meeting a Halifax peddler. When I say peddler, this man was called John Law. He had a large pack on his back, full of 1612 luxuries. In that pack would be items for sale etc he'd go from village to village selling his wares but also he'll be a great source of of information he met Alison on Pendle Hill and Alison begged of him oh please sir please sir uh, just a few pins sir to pin me clothing together so you can spare some pins sir can't you get away with you I'm not taking my pack off for you lass get away with you according to John Law the Halifax peddler out of the heather out of the bracken appeared a huge black dog with snarling white teeth and glowing red eyes and the dog sat next to Alison and the dog talked. Alison, shall I lame him for you? 
Lame him! Lame him! She screamed. All of a sudden, John Law felt this terrible pain in his left arm, his left leg, and collapsed in agony on the slopes of Pendle Hill. The kind people of the town of Cone, not too far from there, could see him. They got a stretch team together, they carried him down the slopes of the hill, and into an old inn called the Greyhound, which is long, long since gone. There the landlord, Jonathan Edrington, he fed him and cleaned him, and as Law's voice returned, Law shouted, I've been cursed! There's a witch on the hill, a young lass called Devise. She's got a dog with her, and I swear to you, I heard the dog talk, she's a league with devil. I want you to send letters back to my family. Letters were sent back to Halifax, and John Law's eldest son, Abraham, received the first letter. Hey, my father's in trouble. I better go and collect him. He set off from Halifax, arrived in the town of Cone, and saw his father in a twisted and contorted state. Uh, father, uh, what's happened to you, man? You look terrible. Abraham, I've been cursed. I met this witch. She is a witch. She's got a dog. Abraham, I swear to you, I heard the dog talk. She's in league with devil. I want you, lad, to find her. Bring her here. Well, Abraham must have been a very brave lad. He walked up the slopes of Pendle Hill. He found this stone cottage called Malkin Tower. He hammered on the door. The door slowly opened. And there was a young boy called James Device. Uh, can I help you, sir? What are you looking for? I want to see Alison Device. My father wants to see her. Uh, she's in here, sir. Alison came to the door. Uh, can I help you? Right, lass, you're coming with me. You've cursed me, father. He wants to see you. Abraham grabbed her by the hand. She protested her innocence, but was dragged through the forest of Pendle, down the slopes of Pendle Hill, and into the old Greyhound Inn, where she made eye contact with John Law, the Halifax peddler. He looked up from his sickbed. It's you! It's you! You're the witch! You cursed me last, didn't you? You cursed me! All of a sudden, this 14-year-old girl, Alison Device, burst into tears and begged forgiveness. Oh, sir, I'm sorry for cursing you, sir. Please forgive me for cursing you, sir. And John Law was about to for forgive her, but not his son, Abraham. Oh, no, we'll have you for this. I'm going to go and get magistrate. Now, the local magistrate was called Roger Noel. He lived in the village of Reed, near the town of Burnley. When I say magistrate, he was in charge of the whole of the Pendle area. He knew about the king's paranoia with witchcraft, and he also knew if he could incriminate this young girl, he was indeed going to curry favour with the king, personally. So therefore he had Alison arrested. She was brought to his home, Reed Hall, where she burst into tears, and for the second time inside 24 hours, she admitted to witchcraft but she gave Noel a lot more information. My grandmother, she's a witch. So's Bessie Chattox and her daughter Anne Redfern, the four of us. We have these dogs. Tib, Ball, Fancy, Dandy. They're our familiars. We get our powers off them. They came to us at different times of our lives and said, look, we can give you special powers, but in return, we need to suckle from your flesh. We also make clay effigies, clay pictures of human beings. We go to the local cemetery. We take hair and teeth from the corpses and make these clay effigies of people. We then crumble them over the flames and they die, sir. Well, Roger Noel, the magistrate, was actually not scared, but quite delighted. He had a confession and he knew if he could incriminate these four women, 
he was indeed going to carry favour with the king personally. So therefore, he had Alison Devise, Demdike, Chattox and Redfern arrested. They had a huge argument between them all. They all tried to blame each other. They were then sent to the city of Lancaster and thrown into what's called the Well Tower in the city of Lancaster. A deep, deep, deep dungeon in total darkness, chained to the floor. In the meantime, on Good Friday, 1612, at the stone cottage called Malkin Tower, all the other so-called witches met. It was like a scene from a Shakespeare play, as Alison's brother James slaughtered the sheep from the fell. They dined on mutton. They got a large cooking vessel called a cauldron. They lit a fire beneath the cauldron, and the black, syrupy liquid inside began to bubble and steam. And into that black, bubbling liquid went crushed, powdered human teeth, the odd clay effigy, and indeed the odd human scalp. The whole idea was to get a potion together to blow the gates of Lancaster City Castle open and rescue their loved ones. But nothing happened. What did happen is word reached the ears of Roger Noel. A meeting, you say. I want these people arrested immediately. When word got out that these people were going to be arrested, if you thought, there's no way I'm going to hang around, and they disappeared. In doing so, it saved their lives. But the ones that were successfully arrested were Jeanette Preston of Gisborne, West Yorkshire, Catherine Hewitt, Alice Gray of the town of Cone, Elizabeth Device, James Device, Jeanette Device of Malkin Tower, along with John and Jane Bullcock, a mother and son farmers, and a very brave lady called Alice Nutter. They were all sent to Lancaster, with the exception of Jeanette Preston. She came from Gisborne, West Yorkshire, so therefore she was sent to the city of York, and there she was found guilty of witchcraft. Her husband went with her, and relatives went with her, and they begged for her release. But the judges said, I'm sorry, the king has signed her death warrant. She was found guilty of the murder of her employer. She'd been nursing him. He had died. She wrapped his body in a clean white sheet ready for burial, and two days before the burial... She had touched the sheeting, and some fresh blood came for the sheets. This was classed as witchcraft. She was executed in the city of York on the 27th of July, 1612. In the meantime, the others are being held at Lancaster. The king sends two circuit judges, James Oldham, Edmund Bromley, and a young boy called Thomas Potts. And Thomas had no idea, but he was going to make a lot of money out of this trial. He was going to write a book in 1613, called The Wonderful Discovery of Witches in Lancashire. The courts were assembled, and uh, the first person brought up was Bessie Chattox. She was basically a skeleton in rags. She admitted to the murder of five local people by making the clay dolls, by crumbling the clay dolls over the fire, turning milk blue and murdering cattle, and being in league with the devil. Then came Demdike. She was also found guilty of witchcraft, and she admitted to witchcraft. She said that she was in league with the devil, and she had these special powers given to her by her dog, a familiar called Tib. Alison Devise admitted to uh, laming the Halifax peddler by witchcraft. James Devise also admitted to the death of James Carr of Townley Hall, Burnley. Catherine Hewitt and Alice Gray also admitted to witchcraft. However, three didn't. John and Jane Bullcock, a mother and son, Now, uh, they uh, had a problem with the local magistrate called land disputes. 
along with a lady called Alice Nutter. And what made Alice so unique is she was very wealthy. She was well-educated. Now, in those days, in 1612, women in Britain had no rights whatsoever and were treated very, very badly. When it came to male chauvinism, this was a horrible period of time for women in this country. Alice had a huge problem. She was actually a wealthy woman. She owned land on the side of Pendle Hill with her husband. And someday she got very, very annoyed when uh, her her hedges and indeed her fencing was pushed back and she was losing cattle and sheep. She said to her husband, look, I'm a woman. I can't complain, but you can. I'm too scared, he said. So therefore, Alice Nutter made the very brave decision as a woman to walk to the law courts in Lancaster. She walked into a court session to the words of, it's a woman, get her out. There's a woman in the courts, get her out. It's a woman, it's a woman, get her out. She grabbed hold of furniture. Uh, Prison staff tried to drag her out of the building, but she wouldn't go. And the judges said, well, let her have her say. And in one day, she won all her land disputes, but made a real enemy of Roger Noel, the local magistrate. And he thought, I need to get rid of this woman. How can I do it? Well, he had a trump card up his sleeve. He'd kept the youngest of the devised children, young Jeanette, with him at his home at Reed Hall, whilst, her, uh, whilst Jeanette's grandmother, Demdike, her mother Elizabeth, brother James, and sister Alison had been sent to the city of, of Lancaster. She'd been kept at Reed Hall, uh, the home of the local magistrate, and to use a modern term, she'd been groomed by him uh, by having uh, a lovely warm bed to sleep in, three meals a day, and also nice clothes to wear, something she'd never had before. She was brought into the courts at Lancaster on the 17th of August, 1612. Noel picked her up and put her on top of a desk so the jury could see her, and she shouted, "Me grandmother's a witch! Me mother's a witch! So's me brother! So's me sister! And then Noel pointed at Alice Nutter and John and Jane Bullcock. These three people over here, were they at the Good Friday meeting at Malkin Tower? They were, sir, said young Jeanette. A look of horror came across Alice Nutter's face as she realised, to use a modern term, she was indeed being stitched up. She made a plea of not guilty. I don't know these people, but she was found guilty of the murder of Henry Mitten of Ruffley, a village near the Forest of Pendle because he wouldn't give her a penny. In court, she said, look, I don't need to beg. I'm a wealthy woman. I don't know these people. But she knew she had indeed been stitched up. And, of course, Jeanette had pointed out as being at the Good Friday meeting. The Pendle witches were then led out to what's called the pillory at the city of Lancaster, beneath Lancaster City Castle. They had their hands tied behind their backs. They had to mount a rostrum and then the stools were kicked out from underneath them. It has been said that as the rope was placed around Alice Nutter's neck, she turned to watch this huge crowd gather to watch this horrible macabre execution, and she caught the eye of Roger Noel holding the hand of young Jeanette in this huge crowd, and she defiantly shouted from the gallows, I shall haunt you for the rest of your life! And then the stools were kicked out from underneath them. These poor people did not hang. There was no drop. They literally strangled to death. It was a very cruel and a very, very, very uh, terrible, painful, painful death. Watching that day was young Jeanette holding the hand 
of the magistrate. She watched the whole family perish, and the three farmers as well. And as soon as they stopped twitching the pillory, Noel said, Goodbye. He had used the poor girl. She said, Am I not going back to Reed Hall with you, that lovely warm bed and the three meals a day? Goodbye. He had used her. The following day, Roger Noel made his way to the City of London and was knighted by the King personally. The two circuit judges, James Oldham Edmund Bromley, also knighted. And Thomas Potts, the clerk of the courts, wrote his book on the trial. And that's why we have this this window into this rather, rather tragic story. Of course, some 75 years later, in Salem, Massachusetts, under British law, a trial took place of the Salem witches, and they used a child witness once again, with exactly the same results. Wow. And there we have the Pendlewitch story, Dave. That is intense. I mean, it just goes to show how eager they were back then to try and rid every type of witch and person associated with anything occult right off the map. They just wanted them gone. What amazes me, Dave, there was no defense whatsoever. There was no defense because no one dared take on the king. The local magistrate, Roger Noel, wants to carry favor with the king. And he knows for every which he can convict, he is going to carry favor with the king personally. And of course, he was knighted by the king and made the high sheriff of Lancashire, the county of Lancashire, and made the high sheriff. So he did very well. The two circuit judges also knighted. But these these people, uh, sadly, six of them actually admitted to witchcraft. They believed they were witches, and they did admit to the to being a witch, uh, to having these these powers. But the three farmers didn't. John and Jane Bullcock. And Alice Nutter, they died very, very brave deaths. And I believe probably innocent of the crimes against them. Well, let's continue on here. We have about 15, 16 minutes before we have the show. And I know you got a plethora of ghost tours and ghost stories to share with us. So let's, sure. look, let's look at another one here. What about Ribble Valley? There seems to be a lot happening in Ribble Valley. Ribble Valley is a gorgeous part of the county of Lancashire. Uh, I do guided tours of the town of Clitheroe, which is in the centre of the Ribble Valley. And what I always find with my tours, Dave, is I like to talk to local people about ghosts. You can read about them, but it's nice to get an eyewitness account. And I'm going to bring in a really, really good story for you here uh, from the railways. Uh, here in uh, England, we have a lot of Victorian railways, which uh, now have, of course, modern modern locomotives but i did meet a, a marvelous chap called bill morris a couple of years ago and bill's a l- lovely man in his uh, 90s when i talked to him he told me that he came from a town called darwin uh and the east lancashire railway went straight past his garden and as a little boy he'd watch the steam locomotives go by he'd wave at the drivers and of course the the engine drivers would pull the the whistle cord and you'd hear that <laughs> as the trains went past. He told his mum and dad, when I leave school, I want to work on the railway. He left school at the age of 14 and became what's called a wheel tapper. His job was to work at the railway station. When the trains came in, he would inspect all the wheels to make sure they weren't cracked with an instrument called a wheel tapper. He then graduated to become a fireman on a steam locomotive. 
and then just after his 21st birthday, he became a steam engine locomotive driver. He got the job of his dreams. He worked from London, Euston, right up to the city of Edinburgh, up and down the railway line from London to Edinburgh. But in the summer of 1953, he was absolutely delighted to be posted to the East Lancashire Railway, and he would actually go past the very garden that he watched the trains go by as a young lad. His mum and dad were quite elderly by then, but every time he went past their home, he would pull the whistle to go... On a beautiful, beautiful August day, he came down from the city of Carlisle, heading towards the town of Darwin. And just past Darwin is a very, very long tunnel called the Suff Tunnel. As the train was about to make its way into the tunnel in beautiful, bright sunlight, he glanced to the right and saw a field near the tunnel entrance with fencing right along the side of the field. Behind the fencing was a little boy with straw-coloured hair, and the little boy waved at Bill as the train went by, and of course Bill would wave back at him and make the customary three whistles on the, on the steam locomotive. He saw this boy with the straw-coloured hair every single day for the next four weeks, and got used to him always being in the same place. However, on this beautiful August afternoon, the train made its way towards the tunnel, and he saw the boy with the straw-coloured hair in a different part of the field. Of course, when the boy saw the steam locomotive, he started running towards the fence, and Bill noted with absolute uh, deep expression that the boy was running through sleeping sheep in the field. It's as if the sheep didn't even know he was there. He was running through sleeping sheep. Uh, Bill elbowed the farmer. Look, look, look at that! The farmer looked up, but by then the train had just entered the tunnel. They got to the city of Manchester, and in Manchester they changed the freight over and went to the Buffy bar on the station, the canteen on the station. And the farmer said, Hey, Bill, you've been really quiet. What's wrong? Well, that young boy with the straw-coloured hair, the one we see every time, he was in the field, as usual, but he started running through sleeping sheep, and the sheep didn't even know he was there. The farmer said, Oh, Bill, you're seeing things. You're seeing things, Bill. Impossible. Well, they made their way back up north again, and as the train was heading towards the northern end of the tunnel, they saw a red light. Bill slowed the engine down because the light was being held by a police officer. And Bill stopped the locomotive and shouted to the, the police officer, uh, What's wrong, officer? Oh, terrible. Absolutely terrible. There's been a young lad killed at the entrance to the tunnel. Oh, officer, that's terrible. Oh, that's really, really bad news. Oh, it's terrible, officer. It really is terrible news. His brother got killed there five years ago. The same, same family. We just told the parents. Oh, officer, that is terrible. Bill was quite jaded by this news, of course. Word came through that the line was now clear and they got permission to go through the tunnel with the steam locomotive. The steam locomotive came out of the tunnel in bright, bright sunshine and Bill instantly glanced to his left and saw the straw-coloured-haired boy standing in the field behind the fence holding the hand 
of a much taller boy. They both waved at Bill. Bill turned around to wave back at them. And they both vanished into thin air. Bill took a deep intake of breath and elbowed the fireman. Have you seen that? Have you seen that? He shouted. No, I was too busy shoveling. Bill knew that that day he saw the ghost of the two brothers who lost their lives on the railway line five years in between each other. A very gripping story, but also a very true story, David. No kidding. You know, that could give anybody nightmares hearing anything like that. Then you have to wonder, was it his train that maybe killed them? And that's why there was such a a clamoring by those ghost children towards the train. One thing, uh, when Bill told me the story, he told me the story, of course, and uh, I sat down with him and had a... Re- and uh, you could see the emotion in the chap's eyes as he told me the story. You could see the deep emotion. Uh, what he did tell me is that he never, ever saw them again. It just happened just happened the once just the once but so uh, another oh sorry david it, it, was, sorry. it was like the the younger brother was waiting for the older brother on the other side almost like he knew that that was going to happen yes. and that's where he needed to wait yes that's right he was waiting for his brother and uh, they must have been very very close but in some ways who knows they made their presence known to bill and uh, Bill, I'll never forget his words, actually, he's left my, uh, so I left his company that day. He said, Simon, I never believed in ghosts until I saw one with my own eyes. <clears throat> A very touching story, really. Was he traumatized by that? Was he able he, to continue he, on he his was. job? Uh, yes, he did. He continued with the job. But every time he went to the, towards the tunnel, he would always glance. But he never saw the boys ever again. He never saw them again. But uh, another great story, David. Uh, this afternoon, uh, I've, I've got a guided tour of this gorgeous building. And I would like listeners to look up this building. It's called Salmsbury Hall, built in 1322. It's a Gorgeous, gorgeous Tudor building in magnificent condition. And I've got a guided tour there at two o'clock this afternoon. But one of my favorite stories from the hall is a very, very true story of a young girl called Dorothea, whose only crime in life was to belong to a different faith, the Catholic faith. On a beautiful summer's day, uh, way back in the year 1595, she left Sarsby Hall and made her way into the forest. <clears throat> there she picked some bluebells and uh, she heard the sound of a galloping horse, almost like a... <clears throat> On that horse was a handsome young boy called De Horton from Horton Towers, another very, very beautiful hall on the very, very near Salmsbury. It was literally love at first sight. Uh, Dorothea went back in the hall and told her mother and father. Her father was absolutely livid. We are Catholics. They are Protestants. You will never, ever, ever see him again. If you do, I promise you, I'll have you sent to live with the nuns in the south of France. We are Catholics. You will never, ever take your hand in marriage. You will never see him again. If you do, I promise you, I will have you sent to live with the nuns in the south of France in Marseille. If anything, this threat seemed to fuel their love. 
In the dead of night, she would leave her bed, tiptoe past her sleeping parents, and make her way out into the forest to meet young Dee Horton. Her father warned her for the final time. Right, if you continue with this relationship, I promise you I will have you sent to live with the nuns in the south of France. We are a Catholic family. They are Protestants. He will never have my permission to marry you. Do you understand? She nervously looked at the floor and made her way back to her bedroom. That night, she tiptoed past what she thought were her sleeping parents and her sleeping brothers. She made her way across the manicured lawns of Sandby Hall, and there on the fringe of the forest, illuminated in bright, bright moonlight, was young De Horton. When he saw her, he politely bowed. He knelt down and he affectionately kissed her hand. He reached into his blouse and brought out a huge engagement ring. Oh, Dorothea, Lady Dorothea, will you end this heartache and become my wife? A huge smile came across her face, and she gratefully, gratefully accepted young De Horton's proposal. He put the ring on her finger. They embraced, and for a brief moment, both felt each other's love and each other's warmth until they heard the sounds of shouting and footsteps coming from the forest. Suddenly, out of the forest appeared Dorothea's two brothers, armed with two very sharp knives. They pounced on young De Horton, murdering the poor boy right in front of Dorothea. Her heart was snapped in two. She was dragged back into Sarnsby Hall with tears streaming down her face. The following day, her cruel father had her sent to live with the nuns in the south of France in Marseille. On arriving there, that poor girl never ate again, she never slept again, and she died literally of a broken heart. That's when the famous sightings of the White Lady of Salisbury have taken place, always across the road in front of the hall, and always in between the horse chestnut tree and the yew tree, and occasionally in the hall itself. She's been seen by many, many people, but way back in the year 1926, a most amazing find took place. When uh, the road near the hall was widened to take more heavier traffic, and they put what's called a herringbone drainage system across the lawns of Sarsby Hall. One of the trenches went in between the horse chestnut and the yew tree, exposing the foot of an adult male skeleton. The Preston CID, the Criminal Investigation Department, arrived, and they took away a lot more soil, and they found the skeleton of an adult male on one of those fingers was a huge, huge ring. The ring was removed, carefully inspected, and had the engraving inside Dorothea De Horton. It was none other than young De Horton, who had been murdered all those years ago by the two South of Boys. And that would explain why the White Lady Salisbury will always stop in between the horse chest and the yew tree over the grave of the only boy that ever showed her any love, any warmth, and any affection. It's a beautiful building, David. You'd love it. 
I have listeners right now in our chat rooms and on Twitter showing us pictures right now, and that is an incredible building. It's a gorgeous building, David. I'm, I'll be there for 2 o'clock this afternoon, and it's like walking back in time, if you will. Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. I mean, the place looks haunted, that's for sure. Lots of hiding spots uh, in there. Oh, gosh. Well, you've also got what's called priest holes. Uh, the South of family, they were Catholics. And this very, very day, uh, inside the hall is a fantastic fireplace. It looks completely innocent. But there's a special switch, a 1595 switch, which will open the front of the fireplace. And priests, Catholic priests, could rush into it and they put the fireplace back. And, of course, when the king's soldiers arrived to look for Catholics, they'd find absolutely nothing. Uh, the actual priesthood was designed by a most amazing chap called Nicholas Owen. Some of Nicholas Owen's work, David, is so good, it hasn't been discovered. And you can pick up the national press in England sometimes and hear of our cleaning ladies that have been working in our halls from Land's End up to Scotland, who've accidentally touched something and a, a wall's appeared from nowhere or a door's appeared from nowhere or a ceiling has dropped because uh, Owen was an absolute um, genius when it came to making these uh, priest hidey holes, if you will. Uh, he was captured in Somerset in the south of England in the year 1606, was sent to the Tower of London, and there the poor lad was hung, drawn, and quartered a very, very cruel and a very, very painful death. Before he lost his life, to this very day, if you go to the Tower of London, you will see scratched into the wall, into the alabaster plaster, uh, his words, which are beautifully uh, carved into the wall, probably using a nail or a file, the words, this day I shall be with my father. He was an ardent Christian, of course, an ardent Catholic. Above his name, you've got Anne Boleyn's name, one of King Henry VIII's wives. You've got Sir Walter Raleigh. Uh, you've got Lady Jane Penn of Pennsylvania fame. And, of course, uh, you've also got uh, uh, the two boys that were very, very cruelly murdered, the two twins that were murdered on the orders of King Richard. They've also scratched their names into the, the Tower of London, into the plaster. Uh, you could say this is medieval graffiti. It's beautifully looked after. They put perspex over all those, uh, all that graffiti. But to look at Anne Boleyn's handwriting, absolutely gorgeous, David. She's uh, used what's called italics, beautifully scratched into the wall there. Beautiful handwriting. Uh, Tower of London, well worth a visit, folks. My friend, we only have about 60 seconds left with you. I'd love it if you could tell all of our listeners where they could get a hold of you, your website, and if they're traveling over to England or already living there and haven't taken the tour, how they could find out more information. Okay, folks, well, um, I have a website called www.tophattours.co.uk. I also have a book out called um, Ghostly Tales of the Unexpected. You can buy that on Amazon or Kindle. And if you go to YouTube, I've got a lot of these stories on YouTube under Ghostly Tales from the Grave, Simon Entwistle. And they're great little stories. And a lot of the locations I've been talking about, you can actually see them on YouTube. Uh, but I've got to say, it really has been a great pleasure being with you. Um, 
It's just gone, I think, six o'clock in the morning here in England. I've been up since four, but I've enjoyed every single minute. And I'd like to say a, a very, very big thank you to Dave Scott for very kindly inviting me to this show, because I know there's at least 100,000 of you listening right now. So that's oh. absolutely brilliant. Thank you, Dave. Thank you very much. Very, very much. I would love to get you to come back on around Halloween to share some more stories with My us. My pleasure. You? It would be wonderful. We will set that up. Simon, you hold on. i got to wrap this show up. If you're listening in on the terrestrial radio side of Spaced Out Radio, you hear Mr. Ron Bumblefoot Thal, our official music of Spaced Out Radio. Bumblefoot brings us home every single night on this show. Tomorrow night on the program, one of our favorite guests is back, Ian Holt will be with us talking all things paranormal from movies to death metal. It's going to be a great night. Get the horns out. We're going to rock. 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern time at spaceoutradio.com. We want to welcome and say hello to everyone at WQEE 99 Rock the Key and on the United Public Radio Network on 107.7 FM in New Orleans, our terrestrial stations for carrying us, as well as Revolution Radio and Renegade Talk Radio. Thanks for keeping us in your nighttime slots. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Spaced Out Radio. Our Facebook page is Spaced Out Radio Show. Tune us in on TuneIn. Grab our shows off of iTunes. We're on RadioGuide.fm, TalkStream Live, and on Stitcher as well. We will be back in exactly 21 hours from now. I hope you take the time to join us as well. We keep growing this big ship that we call Spaced Out Radio. Do me a favor, tell a friend, tweet it out, share it on social media. That's how we're going to grow it even more. Let's own the night together, my friends. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Good night.